Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast, LDS Discussions Edition. It is January 12th, 2023, and uh, I'm super excited to have you all join us today for another episode. Um, today's episode is an overview of Joseph Smith's translations. And just very, very quickly, we are about 34 episodes into our LDS discussion series, which is a series on Mormon stories where we do a deep dive into uh, LDS or Mormon church truth claims, uh, trying to base all of our discussion on facts and evidence. We try to be as dispassionate as possible. We try to be neutral and objective, and we just try and look at the claims that the church makes and then look at the evidence and science where we can and then allow you, our viewers and listeners, to make your own informed choice. We try and not do ad hominem, not do snark, not do negativity, but just uh, help you get the information you need to make informed decisions about your life as it relates to Mormon church truth claims. And of course, this is based on the work of Mike um, from LDSDiscussions.com. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good. Um, uh, if you go to LDSDiscussions.com, you'll see essays on all of these uh, topics that we have. Again, we've done 33 episodes prior to this. I strongly recommend that you start from the beginning because they're literally made to build on each other every time we reference previous episodes after the first episode. So you'll do better to start from the beginning. And I'll just end by saying um, you can... Uh, watch this integrated into the Mormon Stories podcast or YouTube feed, but also you can binge watch these episodes either on Spotify under the LDS Discussions brand or on um, Apple Podcasts under the LDS Discussions brand, or you can go to the Mormon Stories podcast YouTube channel and there's a playlist for all the LDS Discussions videos in a row. Um, and of course, all the essays for these episodes can be found at LDSDiscussions.com. If you don't want to hear, you know, Mike and me and Nemo yap on, you can just go read the text and and find the source material that Mike uses for these very important episodes. So, Mike, anything you want to add? No, this this episode is going to be, I think, hopefully for anyone who's been following from the beginning, I think this will be a useful episode because we're going to be calling back to a lot of earlier episodes. So as you said a few minutes ago, um, if you didn't start from the beginning, you can watch this episode, but you're probably going to hear parts where you might go, oh, I should probably, li probably listen to that episode because it's going to have a lot more context. But I think this episode will be one of those episodes that kind of helps to summarize a lot of what we've been trying to kind of lay the foundation for over the last 30 something episodes. So I think yeah. it'll be an important one. And hopefully for those of you who have been following all uh, along the whole time, it'll um, give a little more context into what we've been talking about so far. Yeah. If I were to, if I were to summarize the purpose of today's episodes, we're going to look at six or eight claims that the church and Joseph Smith made over the years about his ability to translate. And then we're just going to give a high level evaluation of how credible of a translator Joseph Smith was. Is that is that kind of what we're doing today? Yeah. So this is going to be, um, we'll talk about it on our yeah. first slide, but yeah, okay. it's, it's just literally just saying, here's what Joseph Smith said he was translating. And here is what the historical record, whether it's, um, you know, as we talked about the book, Abraham, Egyptian scholarship or yep. biblical scholarship, and then saying, 
which ones is, is it a hit? Which ones is a miss? Which one can we not draw any conclusions from? And then see, you know, kind of as I talked about in the very first episode, when you look at this as a puzzle, now we're starting to put the pieces together with all of the previous episodes and they're fitting together really well. And so now we can then evaluate what those truth claims, how they hold up, you know, basically with the last 200 years of scholarship. Beautiful. And joining us today is a much beloved member of our LDS Discussions team and of the Mormon Stories podcast family, but also his own, um, doing his own amazing work as a YouTuber and as a part of the Brit Vengers, which is a British group of Mormon and ex-Mormon uh, YouTubers and podcasters. We have Nemo the Mormon. Hey, everyone. Hey, Hi. love your love your new studio, Nemo. Thank you. Looking Thank you. good. I it myself. Can you ex <laughs> can you explain to us why a taper is wearing a, a British flag, basically? Um, a horse. Uh, th this <laughs> yeah, this horse here uh, is wearing a little British flag because when I hit five thousand subscribers, I did a little competition, and he travelled around all the Brit Vengers. His name's Daniel after Tapir Dan. He travelled around all the Brit Vengers, and um, Peter Bleakley put a Union flag sock on him, uh, and that's been his coat ever since. I love it. Well, um, congratulations, Nemo, for hitting 10,000 on your channel. Thank you. Please subscribe to the Mormon Stories podcast YouTube channel right now if you can. We're about to hit 100,000, which for us is a huge milestone. Um, it helps us with the algorithm. It helps us get better guests, and uh, it helps you stay informed when new episodes come up, but also make sure and uh, mash Mash the button, uh, subscribe button for Nemo, Nemo the Mormon as well. Okay, Mike. Um, and Mike, uh, we don't have this first as the first slide, but the um, oh, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and kick off the first slide, Mike, and then I wanna I wanna add something. So take it away, Mike. Let's go ahead and jump into this episode. Okay. Yeah. So you know the first slide um, basically is just trying to kind of look at the scope of what we're doing, um, and so. In these episodes we've done so far, we've been highlighting um, the issues with Joseph Smith's prophetic works. We've been looking at the, all of the different ways scholars can assess um, the authenticity of the translations, whether it's biblical scholarship, historical analysis, um, and the fact that we now have the ability to translate ancient languages that Joseph Smith was unaware could be happening, such as the Book of Abraham. Um, but the scope of this episode is basically to focus entirely on the translations that Joseph Smith made during his time um, of being a prophet that we either have the source material for, or we have the original accounts um, in order to assess the accuracy of what he was doing in these translation projects. Um, and so you're not going to hear us go um, on about say book of Mormon anachronisms because we don't have the source material of the gold plates, but we are going to talk about the reformed Egyptian character. So this scope of this episode is more, what can we actually evaluate because we have source material for? And for me, it's a worthwhile exercise because it gives us uh, a more detailed picture of, of Joseph Smith's ability as a prophet with tangible source material that makes very, very testable truth claims. And, and that's something I mentioned in a lot of these episodes, which is that in Mormonism, unlike, say, the Bible itself, they're very modern truth claims that we can now test because of the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that we have so much more um, scholarship and ability to translate ancient languages um, to basically compare to what Joseph Smith was saying. And so some of the episode will feel like a bit of a recap. Uh, some of it's going to feel like we haven't really discussed it before. And so it's going to be a mix of kind of a lot of the foundation we've done in the past, but then also adding some new context to it to try to 
um, show how these are all kind of connected. Um, and, and there's a reason that they're connected and we'll get into that as we go through it. Okay. Um, Nemo, is there anything you want to add in terms of, uh, kind of setting up today's episode from your perspective? No, let's just dive in. Okay. One thing, one thing that I want to do, Mike, that I, uh, I, I'm scrambling to do kind of on the fly just because I think it's really important. And I didn't see this in your slides is I want to set up why this question of, um, why this, uh, question of translator is, is so foundational. And so I just added a slide and now I'm going to show it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Doctrine and Covenants, section one, uh, section 107, verse 92. For our never Mormon viewers and listeners, Doctrine and Covenants is one of the four major um, members of the Mormon church scriptural canon. We believe in the doctrine, the, the, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, what's called the Doctrine and Covenants, which was Joseph Smith's Revelations, and then the Pearl of Great Price. And so what I'm about to read you is... Mormon scripture and it's foundational. And so I'm going to read really quickly from uh, DNC 107 verse 92. And it says, behold, here's wisdom. Yea, to be a seer, a revelator, a translator, and a prophet, having all the gifts of God, which he bestows upon the head of the church. And that's interesting for two reasons. It sort of throws down the gauntlet in my mind for Joseph Smith, where where he's either gotta he's gotta show up and translate accurately, because in Mormon scripture, God and Jesus themselves have declared it so. One thing that I actually haven't never thought of before. It says bestows upon the head of the church. That would mean every prophet after Joseph Smith as well, which I don't think we have any any record of any Mormon prophet after Joseph Smith attempting to be a seer or a translator. But um, but that's kind of, that's beside the point. But I guess I just wanted to start by saying, you know, God and Jesus say in Mormon doctrine, and Mormon scripture, that Joseph Smith needs to be able to translate. So that's that's important, right, Mike? Right, Nemo? What do you guys, what do you guys have to say about that? Yeah, uh, well, for me, and and this is kind of I've mentioned this in previous podcasts. I look at what Joseph Smith is saying at face value, and and that's why when you get into that whole argument of like, um, as a hat tip to to Brother Jake's YouTube videos, is it translation or translation? Uh, I don't really think that that's a fair argument because as you show in DNC, as we've shown in a lot of these other episodes, like the book Abraham, we talked about it. They're making very clear that they are translating one language to another. They're translating Reformed Egyptian to. English to translating Egyptian to English. And so if you take it at face value, what does the result, how does it hold up throughout history? And so for me, um, I, I think that's really, it's just about taking it at face value. And, and the church is the one making this claim. We are not making a claim 200 years later that Joseph didn't make. This is what he gives us as a testable claim to his um, credibility as a prophet. And now we're, we're testing it. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't overstate. I didn't overstate the importance of this this issue of translation. No, Joseph mind. Smith said he'd be able to do it, so he should be able to do it. Well, so God, I guess my point is God's God and Mormon Jesus well, yeah. said that Joseph Smith should yeah. be able to do it too, right? Emer? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's go to the next slide, which is the translations of Joseph Smith. We will be covering. Yeah, and so just kind of you know piggyback on, on the, our first slide about what the scope is. We're going to look at the, the characters that Joseph Smith is going to copy from the gold plates of the Book of Mormon. 
Uh, we're going to look at the translation that Joseph does of the Bible after he finishes the Book of Mormon, um, Joseph Smith's Pure Edemic Language, uh, the Book of Abraham Papyri, the Kinderhook Plates, and then we're going to do one at the end of the Lost Writings of John. And as we're saying, this is all based on where we have some source material to compare to. Uh, the one example where we don't really have a direct source material is going to be the bonus one, which is the Lost Writings of John. But we do have what are the writings of the author of the Gospel of John that we can compare to. And that's why that one is so important as well. And this gives us um, something to basically assess what Joseph Smith is claiming um, these translations mean against what we now know through, like I said, all sorts of studies, biblical scholarship, linguistics, being able to translate languages, all of that is going to play a role into what we're going to look at today. Okay. And each one, we're just going to basically say pass or fail. Is that right? Yeah, effectively. I mean, and that's the thing. So we've got six and we're going to say at the end, how many of these six can hold up? How many are kind of, uns you know, we don't know. And so um, I think this is important because, as, you know, again, when you're when you're putting the puzzle back together of all of these claims that you're you're told throughout your life in the, in the in the church, and now you're you're doing it by data and by what you could see with your own eyes, it, it gives you a, a much different finished product of that puzzle. Yeah. But they're gonna these pieces are gonna start fitting really well, especially because of all of the episodes we've done up until now yep. to give more context to these issues. Okay, so Nemo, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for a pass or fail for each one. You ready? You ready for yes, that? Yes, please. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. All right, Mike, you're going to lead off on the on the vote. Okay. So the next slide. So the first, uh, I'll say translation in air quotes because we'll see. Maybe it is a translation. Is the Book of Mormon characters? And I'm immediately knowing. I'm immediately noticing that characters is spelled funny. But but let's let's go to the Book of Mormon characters. Yeah, and so we we covered this in our earlier episodes about the gold plates and, and the translation process, but. We do not have, and I'm going to make this clear, because there is always going to be this pushback that this is not the Anthem transcript, and, and this does okay, not wait, appear so to be. Explain, because, explain to our listeners what we're seeing right now. Yeah, and so what we're looking at, if you're if you're watching this, is this is a set of characters that Joseph Smith claims to copy directly from the gold plates of the Book of Mormon um, that represents the Reformed Egyptian um, that the Book of Mormon was recorded in. And so this is a copy of one of the, this is one of the copies that Joseph Smith made. Um, scholars have gone through, and I think they've identified a handful of them now, um, of different copies, but there is no real argument about these being authentic. So this is a copy, I believe in John Whitmer's handwriting, um, off of what Joseph Smith had originally um, copied as the reformed Egyptian characters. So is this the, is this... A, the piece of paper or something like the piece of paper that Joseph would have given Martin to take to Professor Anthon to validate whether or not these were, were you know, whether this was Egyptian, whether they were valid ancient characters. Is that Do I have that right or not? Well, this doesn't appear to be the actual one that was brought to Charles Anthon. But like it. Um, like it, yeah. So this would have been okay. the same characters uh, probably, you know, okay. once Joseph Smith did it, they probably made multiple copies so they could show other people. I mean, um, they published some of these in a broadside, I think, for the Book of Mormon. So so these characters are not just fabricated by some random person. Um, the church printed a Book of Mormon, I think, in the 1980s with these characters on it. So there's really no... Yeah, I remember that. It's not, it's not like you could say, well, these are fraudulent characters trying to make Joseph Smith look bad. These are mm. um, either a copy of a copy or, you know, something that Joseph Smith copied down and then John Whitmer was next to him and made his own copy. But these are, are as authentic as we know. Okay. Nemo, we're going to add something? For li yeah, just for listeners, uh, if you're now furiously Googling Book of Mormon characters document, uh, it's the one with the characters arranged in horizontal rows um, because the one that Mark Hoffman did had vertical columns. 
And okay. that was a distinction that he used to try and build the authenticity of his copy was that there were some rumors that it was actually the original was to Mark Anthem was in columns rather than rows. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, what I just did really quickly is I just uh, I, I just added to the slide deck the Book of Mormon that the church put out. <laughs> yep, there it is. This is a gold Book of Mormon. And I remember this when I was little with the actual characters on the cover. These are the same characters, right, Mike? Yeah, so those yeah. are be the same characters that you would see on the, the image that we have. And so the idea that these are not authentic uh, because it's not the actual Anthem transcript really is not a argument that's giving the full picture because these these characters are one way or the other what the church has believed to be authentic. And there's really no reason to think that these are, you know, kind of we talk about the book of Abraham, this idea that like scribes are going behind Joseph's back and just inventing him is just, it's a nonsensical argument. So while this probably is not the Anthem transcript, it is going to okay. be a copy of the authentic characters. Okay. Okay. So let's go back to the slide. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I just no, no, you're fine. Context, yeah. um, and, and so the reason that we're focusing on this for this episode is because this is something we can evaluate. We don't have the Book of Mormon plates. Joseph Smith never let anyone, I'm not getting into the witness stuff, but Joseph Smith never let anyone see the gold plates that could copy them down themselves. Um, so this is all we have to work with. And you know, this is the only example we have of uh, Book of Mormon text and Reformed Egyptian. Um, and so this is what we can evaluate now to look at and say, does this hold up as an ancient Egyptian language? You know, I just thought of a point that uh, that's kind of really interesting. If, you know, one of the, you know, it's it's obviously, I think the South Park episode just makes fun of the fact, and the Book of Mormon musical, it's like, of course, of course, Joseph wasn't allowed to show anyone the plates, the gold plates, because they didn't exist. Now, of course, Joseph claims that it's because God wanted people to have faith, so he didn't allow the plates to be available. But anyone who's looking at it objectively is like, well, that's a con right from the start. All he had to do was show everyone the gold plates, and that would be, you know, that would be proof. Uh, isn't it interesting that while God felt like it was crucial to take the golden plates away, God allowed the Egyptian papyrus to be seen by mm -hmm. and shown to everybody. Why? Why was God against against the the plates being shown, but for the papyrus being shown and available? Because Joseph Smith knew the plates would not pass visual inspection. Yeah, That'd be the easiest way to put it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, because it would be really easy. Around. Oh, go ahead, Nemo. I was saying there's a clip going around of Elder Ballard from a few years ago talking about when he met up with a group of uh, other religious leaders. And they said, oh, if you just let us see the plates. And he was like, you know better than that to ask God to show you this. You need to." And he started just going on about faith and how faith is required. And so it's, it's deeply entrenched, this idea that it's somehow positive that we don't have the original evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And the, in, in that case, Joseph wouldn't have ever needed the papyrus or any any know. source he should have just always been channeling revelation without ever needing a source, right? Yeah, I mean, in theory, because this is idea that these are records being written on plates, but if nobody else could translate it by Joseph, there's no harm in showing anyone. That really is the thing to me that is the one of those like intuitive things where you're like, if no one else can translate but Joseph, what harm is there in showing? It's not like someone else can say, oh, you're, you're translating it wrong because no one, this is a, a, a language that has been lost, right? So the fact that you could show the Egyptian papyri, which of course is because Joseph's hands are tied there because this guy's been touring with this with these uh, Egyptian papyrus fragments. So of course he's going to show them to people, but it does show, to your point, 
he knows those are authentic. But, he, you know, the gold plates, if, if, if Dan Vogel um, does a really good video and he, he talks a lot about how easy it would have been for Joseph Smith to make a prop set of plates using tin that they used like to, to tie the barrels together. Um, and obviously we talked in our episode about how, you know, one of the Dan Vogel series is that the reason Joseph Smith comes back home with his thumb busted up is because if you're trying to get that D ring um, to finish the prop set of plates, that's very easy to hurt your thumb because you're pushing with all that, that force. Uh, but once you wrap that in a cloth, you know that it can't pass a visual inspection because he doesn't have all these characters on the plates. And so it just shows to me that Joseph won't show those plates because he knows if he unwraps the cloth, there's nothing there. And so the papyri he knows is authentic. So of course you're going to show people as evidence of, of Abraham and Joseph. Whereas with the plates, it's like, no, sorry, God won't let me do it. It, it really doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it from like an outsider perspective. And I'll put in the show notes, there's a Mormon Stories episode where we have a guy come in and show us tin plates that he made um, that could have easily, w with materials that would have been available in in the 18, you know, 20s. And that's that's an interesting episode in and of and itself. And he used yeah. 19th century hand tools, I think. Right, so. right, right, right. Using 19th yeah. century hand tools, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, let's go to the next slide, which is the story behind the Book of Mormon characters, which I think we told a little bit, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Um, and so basically for this um the purposes of this, um, you know, Joseph Smith is going to command um, via revelation that Martin Harris is going to help fund the the Book of Mormon. We, we talked about this. Um, I don't know if you could put that slide up. I'm just reading off my phone. That's oh, yeah. Cool. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, and so, you know, he, Joseph Smith gets this revelation that Martin Harris has to help fund the publishing of the Book of Mormon. Of course, Martin Harris um, wants to have the language verified by scholars. Um, Lucy. Harris, of course, as we've talked about in the previous episode, she is more skeptical of Joseph Smith. Um, and so Joseph Smith is going to copy a group of characters um, from what he claims to be are the gold plates. And that is the famous story of Martin Harris taking them to Charles Anthon to examine. Um, and, and the problem here is, is the same thing we're going to have with the book of Abraham, which is no one at the time could read Egyptian. Um, the Rosetta Stone was only being discovered. Reformed Egyptian was not considered an authentic language then. It's not considered an authentic language now. And so compounding the problem is that when you take a closer look at the characters that Joseph Smith copied from Martin Harris, it becomes clear immediately that they are strikingly similar to the English alphabet that Joseph Smith was writing and reading at the time of this, you know, translating the Book of Mormon. And so if you go to the next slide, this is the easiest way to understand how to evaluate the characters, which is that every single letter in the in our alphabet and every number is in the characters, whether it's twisted, turned upside down. And um, the Tanners put in one of their newsletters a message using Joseph Smith's Reformed Egyptian characters and turning it into a font, which says, Joseph Smith claimed these characters are Reformed Egyptian. Some critics, however, feel they are deformed English. And when you look at that, it becomes really clear that this is not an ancient Egyptian language, unless we're to believe that, you know, thousands of years ago, they had our alphabet long before it was developed in a crude form that was lost forever and then immediately you know, recreated by completely Which, different I mean, people. You say that as though that's like, yeah, not plausible. And I get it. But to Joseph Smith and to the entire culture around this, the entire culture around him, which was that the ancient Americans can't have been the brown people that are there now because white people are better. That was the prevailing sentiment. Yep. And that's why they all sought to have this justification for, you know, Jewish and ancient Americans and this sort of thing that they came from the old world. Uh, and so it makes sense in that 
respect that they would be like, oh, well, this language that we use now, this alphabet that we use now, which is amazing and brilliant and wonderful, they probably would have used that too, but it got lost. Yeah, It's not a million miles away from believable in that context. No, that's a good point. And I think, you know, Joseph Smith, as I, I do believe he's a creative person, obviously, since I believe he wrote the Book of Mormon, and we've talked about why I think that. Um, but the fact is, you know, unless you're like, a, and we're talking in the 1820s, but you know, unless you even today, like unless you're like a graphic designer or someone who's super creative, it's hard to create a set of uh, uh, characters that aren't going to resemble what you're already familiar with. And so to me, what we're seeing is kind of to Nemo's point is you're trying to find this language that matches some sophistication. And Joseph Smith is needing to create the set of characters quickly. Um, and, you know, he only knows what he knows. I, I don't think Joseph Smith had um, all of these books of, of different languages that he could kind of pull from, like whether it's, you know, some you know, ancient, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the different languages he, he, he would have even had access to. And so, um, you know, it's just, to me, um, I know apologists have gone through, I think Hugh Nibley's gone through and he's found like, oh, there's this one character on the character's document matches this one Egyptian language. But the problem is that if you're going to start going that route, you can find similarities in characters, no matter what language you do. That's just how it works. Cause there's only so many ways you could draw a letter, but when you have every single Egyptian or every single English letter and, and number, in this little document, to me, that's a pretty clear sign that the person who's writing it is not writing from an ancient text, but from something they're familiar with. So just to restate for those who are listening mostly, in that characters document that we talked about, there's a bunch of these gobbledygook characters that Joseph Smith produced. Uh, every letter in the in the English alphabet plus every number can be created if you if you pivot them appropriately you can pretty much create every every letter and number in the english alphabet which suggests that he basically just made this up from from letters and numbers that he was already familiar with and just kind of was was doodling characters yeah is that right okay yeah and and, and if if anyone's interested uh dan vogel has some videos on youtube where he goes through like line by line and he shows where they're coming from. Some of them are coming from magic, the family's magic parchments. I mean, the, he can tell you where these symbols are coming from. This is not like where the characters are a mystery, but they just kind of look like English. It, it's really clear okay. when you actually look at them for what they are. And so I guess in, in some way, to Nemo's point, this is probably what they thought at the time that these ancient people would have been more sophisticated. And I'm sure from a church standpoint, you could say, you can't prove this isn't a hit because we don't have reformed Egyptian to compare it to. It's kind of the DNA argument, right? Like we don't have Lehi's DNA, so you can't compare. Well, I mean, again, you can look at this with your own eyes and, and, and look at how they mirror the English language Joseph Smith was working with and draw your own conclusions. But to me, this tells you that this is not some ancient Egyptian language because there's no connection to any Egyptian script, yet there's perfect connection to what Joseph Smith was familiar with. Got the it. question then to ask would be, you'd have to go back and you'd have to go to the point, and I don't even know if this point exists, where Egyptian separates off from whatever proto-language there was, and these two stems go, one goes to the Latin alphabet, one goes to Egyptian hieroglyphics. Right. I don't even know if that point exists, that sort of like missing link. I don't think it does, but I could be proven wrong. But that's how that's how you'd have to do it, to then follow those arguments. Yeah, and, and I've... And we obviously could do more on this, but I know like from people who have studied linguistics who have talked about this, they're just it, no one takes us seriously because as to your point, you need to find that line where it's coming from. And it just doesn't exist because of the fact that there is no language like this before um, or after Joseph Smith 
claims to have, have found it. And so because there's no evidence for the Book of Mormon archaeologically, uh, archaeologically where we're seeing like maybe tablets or plates that are written that got lost in the ground, we, we have nothing to compare to. But since you can compare to the English language and it matches up so well, to me, that's a pretty good indicator that fits in with this kind of ongoing pattern of Joseph Smith being the person right. that is creating these translations and not, you know, um, God providing him with these ancient languages that, you know, uh, right. another way to put it is if Joseph Smith's seer stone was really channeling the Egyptian characters, which is what the witnesses or jo the people close to Joseph Smith during the translation will tell you, at least one of the accounts says that the character appeared on the rock, then above it, the English language does. Well, if those characters looked Egyptian, Joseph could have written those down, but instead we're, you know what I mean? It, all of these things are pointing very clearly to the author of these characters being Joseph Smith, because it just doesn't line up yeah. linguistically. It, it just doesn't line up in any way outside of just saying, well, we just don't know. So we, so we're just going to assume it's true. And also it's worth mentioning. We've had one of the world's experts, you know, in, in Egyptology, Dr. Robert Ridner from the university of Chicago on Mormon stories podcast. I asked him point blank, is there such a thing as reformed Egyptian? And he says, no, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Yeah, And that, that should matter for people who care about evidence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If you're looking at this from an evidence lens, this is an immediate no. There's no one that's going to tell you this makes sense because yeah. as Nemo said, there's no line to it. Yeah. There's nothing else that resembles it. There's, there's nothing to work with here except for looking at the way we have and saying, yeah. why do all the characters line up with English? It's just, that's okay. pretty simple. Just, you could see sorry. it. Yeah. yeah, maybe yeah. I didn't make my point clear was that essentially what I'm saying is in order for it to be reformed Egyptian, there has to be some way in which Egyptian was reformed so it then looks just like the Latin alphabet. Right. Yeah, but you would, and, and that's the thing. And language, no link there. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So so yeah. languages evolve, right? And so you would be able to find something that would get you to that point and there's yes. nothing. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it's just one of those things where as we'll get into with the Edemic language, it, it's amazing how these ancient people are speaking and writing in a language that won't be created for a lot longer. Yeah. And yet mm -hmm. Joseph Smith knows it. It would be more impressive maybe if it was in a language um, that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known, even if it resembled something else, but it's just, it's immediately in his milieu. So yeah. yeah. If he'd gotten hold of Hebrew at that time in his life, yeah. which he will, he will come across later, but if he'd gotten hold of Hebrew at that time of his life, then deformed that and changed that up. Yep. It would, it would have been a better con in many It'd ways. It'd be more impressive for sure. Yeah. 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 All right, well, let's go yep. to the next slide, the church. And this is a picture that uh, we've shown in previous uh, episodes. Yeah, and, and this is just one of those ones. Um, Nemo and I have pointed this out in, I think, multiple areas. But the church has the characters we showed you on the previous slide. And yet, um, I think they made these about two years ago, maybe three years ago. And they have the series of YouTube videos called Now You Know. And they're about five minutes long. And they explain a kind of a controversial topic. And they tell you why, with apologetic reasons, why it's okay. The church has the actual characters Joseph Smith copied from the Book of Mormon plates. And yet in these videos, they create an entirely new set of characters to look more authentically Egyptian. And that tells me that the church knows full well that oh, Joseph wow. Smith's characters are crap. Because if they trusted that those characters were authentic in any way, they would use them here. And yet they're creating a whole different set of characters to make it look more authentic and not showing um, both members and prospective members what Joseph Smith actually copied. And I think that's extremely telling. It's a little yeah. bit bothering. It, I, I wonder if linguists and specifically Egyptologists are just a little bit offended that the Mormon church would perpetuate the idea of the existence of a language that we have no evidence having ever existed. Like that, that's a little bit problematic. It, it, 
Yeah, it's a little bit problematic to me that the church would be advancing the the idea of it, of of this language. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean it's true. It's, but what's it, sneaky about that? If you see that on the screen, what's sneaky about it is you can read the word "your" in it, right? Just above the center oh, of the gold plates, Y O U R. Then there's a Z. Then there's an X. Then there's another kind of Z. There's W's in there. There's M's in there. There's V's. There's a number yeah. four. Like and now, when they, you they said when you say Z, you mean Z, right, Nemo? Sorry, just, yes, apologies. I'm there's I'm a Z there. <laughs> um, just joking. So, <laughs> but like they they can't stray too far from what Joseph right. Smith did. They've yep. got to like. They've got to try and make it look a bit more ancient, so they've made it a bit more angular. Yeah. Um, but it's still there's still English letters and numbers in there. I yeah. think I think what you're saying, three. Mike, you're saying that Joseph Smith's Anton characters were so bad that even though the church has them, they didn't want to use them in their in their public uh, uh, you know educational videos because <laughs> they did put them on the front of that Book of Mormon, John. Yeah. So they used to put them on public display. So why don't. are they now hiding them? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can't make this up. All right, let's go to the next slide. The Mormon Church creates a new set of characters. Oh, did did we already cover this? We pretty much did. Yeah, we can. It's just basically to say that the, the the Mormon Church has the characters, and yet they created a new set of characters for these videos. And and these are videos that are going out to, to the world on YouTube. So to me, it's an interesting thing that they're. I mean, in my opinion. I don't know if the word embarrassed is good, but they're too uncomfortable using Joseph Smith's actual characters, um, which I think is a big red flag. So well, it's the same way they were uncomfortable with showing images of Joseph Smith putting his head in a hat for a long yep. time, right? Yeah. They knew that for a very long time, yeah. but the narrative, the thing they portrayed to the public was Joseph Smith looking at the plates with his spectacles on whichever version that you've seen. They put yep. that in chapels, meeting houses, on the front of church magazines. And it wasn't until they were essentially forced to start doing it otherwise that they then did. Yeah. Yeah, that's that right. simple. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump to... Um, Let's jump to the next slide, which is the Book of Mormon characters and Reformed Egyptian. Yeah, and so just you know to basically summarize this this first part, it's just to say that there's no evidence that Reformed Egyptian was ever a language, um, and, and I personally believe that Joseph Smith created this because he knew there was no one else who could translate it. Because again, it, you know, as, as Nemo said earlier, um, if he had said the book was in Hebrew, a lot of people could translate it. So then he would have to say, well, no, it's a Hebrew that you can't know, which, which gets into a whole lot of issues because people could probably understand that it's not at all Hebrew, you know? So um, I think that for, for Joseph Smith, this made the most sense in order to create something that no one else but him could touch. And that allows him to keep himself elevated yeah. against anyone else who could kind of question what he's doing. Um, and, and so I think that's why he creates Egyptian. But the problem obviously is that now we can look at it with all of the vast amount of Egyptian, I, I think Robert Ridner talks in his interviews with you about all of the books they have of all of these different scripts. And there is nothing in any of them that would correlate to reformed Egyptian in any statistically significant way. And um, as we've talked about in our previous episodes, um, you know, people were really fascinated by Egyptian relics at the time. So it also fe feeds into that kind of Egyptomania that's going on at the time. And Joseph Smith believed that every character in Egyptian held sentences worth of meaning, which allowed for him to create a book that was 273,000 plus words with just a small set of plates. And as we talked about in our episodes on the book of Abraham, this is just not how the Egyptian language works. Um, and as the world would learn after Joseph Smith's death, the math just simply doesn't add up. And so not only are the gold plates engraved with fast records anachronistic, which we talked about in the gold, um, the 
uh, episode on the plates, um, Joseph Smith's understanding of the Egyptian language, which he used to craft the Book of Mormon, is just wrong. And so these characters have no connection to the ancient world, but are point are screaming to us that they're a 19th century creation. Um, okay. So uh, if we have to give Joseph Smith a grade for the Book of Mormon characters for our first uh, our first grade for today, Mike, what do you, what are you giving Joseph Smith on this one? I mean, to me, it's 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 just an obvious fraud. I mean, it's not it's not an ancient record. So if it we're going past fail, I'd say it's a it's a clear fail. All right. So so for for Mike, it's a fail. Nemo, what is it for you? It's a fail. The thing I remember most is that when we covered the amount of like text you could get on gold plates in terms of engraving, that we worked out an entire university dissertation's worth of words were missing from every plate. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fail. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to say it's worse. I'm going to say it's not only a fail, and this isn't me trying to pile on or be negative. It's just me being sincere. For me, it's it's worse than a fail. Because not only is it is it clearly not a translation, but but it's potentially fraud. He's making up a language so that then he can claim to translate it. So that's that's a fail on top of a fraud. And this is the type of thing that that you know sometimes people like to have a good faith um, kind of. Um, assumption with Joseph Smith that maybe, as Dan Vogel says, he was a pious fraud. He really believed in God and Jesus, but sometimes he fooled people because he felt like it's okay to fool people if it helps them believe in Christ. Um, but then there's always the question of, was he just making it all up? When you start making up characters and inventing a language that doesn't exist and then claiming you can translate from it, that's when you start, for me, really getting into fraud territory. So... I hope I'm not coming too down too hard on him. Um, no, I mean it's it's just it's it's, it's not what it claims to be, and so for me, yeah, you're, you, th these characters were copied in part to get Martin Harris to to fund the publishing of the Book of Mormon. So if you're creating fake characters to get someone to sell their property to to help fu you fund a book, and you're doing this in the name of God, yeah, I mean it's it's a fraud, and fraud's a, a very fighting word. It's you know it's a pejorative, right? But at the same time. How else would you describe this if they're not what Joseph Smith claims them to be? Yeah. And I was just thinking I I about this recently. Like when Bernie Madoff, you know, creates a, a Ponzi scheme and bilks billions of people, we're okay using the word fraud because fraud frauds exist. So if the word fraud can be used in other contexts, I don't think it's fair to say we can't use it in a religious context. It's off limits because people hold these beliefs sacred. I think if the word fraud exists and if the word fraud applies, even if it's offensive, we need to be able to use it, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, a if we're like, for the purposes of these episodes, it's it's about approaching it from a face value yeah. standpoint. Yeah. It's not about approaching it from a faith-based standpoint. So if you want to make the argument that Joseph Smith meant well and therefore creating a set of, of characters is okay. That's an argument you have to make in a different realm because we're looking at it from a perspective yeah. of is what can true? we see with our own eyes and does that match? Yeah. And if it doesn't match, yeah. then by definition, what would that be if you're using that to get someone to help you fund a, a project, which is a financially motivated reasoning, which would fit fraud perfectly. And so yeah. it, it's, it's a very loaded term, 
But from a you know definition standpoint, it, it fits, especially in this particular case, because Martin Harris is going to sell property to give money to Joseph Smith to fund the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and 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 we all know Joseph Smith was super poor and got sick of doing farm work, and this was literally his way to feed and support himself and his family. And we've talked about that in the previous episodes. I think yeah. a good way to a good way to explain it maybe is is to say that if Joseph if Joseph Smith were asked in court. Did you invent a language in order to get Martin Harris to mortgage his farm so that you could get that money? And he said yes. If he admitted to it, then you would call it fraud. Joseph Smith's denial of it, it shouldn't really factor in if you're looking at it from an evidence-based perspective. You would just, if, and if you want to get into that headspace, you just ask, okay, well, what if he admitted the things we were saying? Then you would call it fraud. Right, right, right. right. You'd find it very easy to. That's great. Yeah. That's a great point, Nemo. All right, no, let's, let's jump to, you know, uh, what do we call it? Evidence number two or, or uh, specimen number two? What are we going to call yeah, these? Yeah, I guess uh, subject number subject two. Subject number two I guess. is the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible or the JST. Yep. And so yeah. this is a project that Joseph Smith is going to basically undertake pretty much as soon as he finishes the Book of Mormon. And um, just to kind of give a, a brief overview, Joseph Smith is going to look at the Bible. He's going to start with the King James Bible. So that's why we have the foundational text for it. And he's going to try to add to it, change it to restore some of the plain and precious truths that were lost through the errors of man retranslating it. And Bruce R. McConkie describes it, uh, this project, the following way. He says, the Joseph Smith translation or inspired version is a thousand times over the best Bible now existing on earth. It can, it contains all that the King James version does plus pages of additions and corrections and an occasional deletion. It was made by the spirit of revelation and the changes and additions are the equivalent of the revealed words in the book of Mormon and the doctrine and covenants reference to this section and to the footnotes themselves will give anyone who has spiritual insight, a deep appreciation of this revelatory work of the prophet Joseph Smith. It is one of the great evidences of his prophetic call. And so Bruce R. McConkie is making no, no qualms about it. This is a, a work of revelation. Man. Joseph Smith is able to read the King James Bible version, and God is going to channel through him through revelation uh, what he needs to change. And so while you might not call this a, a translation from language to language, it is taking a text and translating it back to what was um, considered by early members and, and, and members today to be uh, a more original form of the Bible that was lost through the errors of man. Man, if anyone was a gauntlet thrower, it, a, a gauntlet thrower down, it was Bruce R. McConkie, because those are some pretty strong words. And and I do think, you know, I think it might be helpful just to explain a tiny bit more, which is why would Joseph Smith even want or need to translate the Bible? And my, you know, the way I piece this together is some dude comes into Kirtland at some point who knows Hebrew. Joseph's like, oh, the original Bible, you know, parts of it were written in Hebrew. Why do we learn Hebrew in the School of the Prophets so that we can read from the original sources of the Bible and, and have a more pure understanding of the Bible? And then if you add to that the fact that sometimes the Bible said stuff maybe Joseph didn't like, um, or maybe sometimes Joseph wanted to add things so that it could justify his current beliefs, for all those reasons, Joseph thought it prudent to revise the Bible, which in and of itself is a pretty bold, it's a pretty ballsy, bold move, right? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I think most of it was done before he even established the school of the prophets. I think, and it's definitely before he would take the Hebrew lessons with um, Joshua Satius. But I, I I assume it was a project that was done because Joseph Smith was creating a theology that he then had to, um, in certain instances, he saw some of the contradictions in the Bible that we all see, right? And so you're trying to smooth it out. And when you write the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon has contradictions with the Bible, and so. Revising the Bible allows you to fit the Bible more snugly with the Book of Mormon as well. And so I I don't know exactly what the ultimate motivation was, but Joseph Smith, as we've talked about in our previous episodes, is very um, aware sometimes of when he creates a, a contradiction, when he changes, say, the first vision of the priesthood restoration, and then he has to kind of retrofit revelation back into it to make it seem like it was that way all along. And that could be the case um, with the, the Bible itself, because um, there is... Um, and a paper written by Colby Townsend about Adam and Eve um, in the Book of Mormon. And I believe in that paper, he goes into detail about how the Bible and the Book of Mormon's Adam and Eve have to be kind of reconciled. And so there are a lot of you know, specific points here that Joseph's probably trying to accomplish. Um, but obviously, when you do a project this big, it's, it's going to have other implications as well. It's almost a form of pseudepigrapha, um, you know, writing as if you are a dead person to give your writing more authority. But instead of trying to create new uh, documents, he's just revising the, the original documents as if he's the author. Isn't that, is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, pseudepigraph is writing in someone else's name. So if you're writing yeah. with the, under the premise of it being the King James Bible, then yeah, I mean, it's the same thing because doing that allows you to make changes where members are going to go, oh, wow, that that actually enhances our meaning of it, as opposed to if Joseph Smith was just like, hey, I, I received this revelation that this is wrong. You know, I mean, it, it's a much smoother way to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 writing it in, in the name of an established book um, in order to, right. you know, make Give some changes that you you feel need to be made. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's interesting. The example that comes to mind is Genesis, uh, Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis chapter 50, verse 33, and you would ask, well, Genesis only has 26 verses in chapter 50, and you would be right. But Joseph Smith added a load more in the JST, um, including 33, where he basically says, the Lord will raise up a seer, and funnily enough, his name will be Joseph too. So he wrote himself into the Bible, so that then there was some ancient prophecy that predicted he would come forward in the last days as a prophet and seer. Mm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and and that is one of those things that was one of those early things I started doing the deep dive, and I saw someone mention that. I'm like, oh my goodness, like yeah, what what a way to do it to write yourself into the Bible, because um, obviously the Book of Mormon prophesies of of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon, but what better way than to write yourself into the Bible to put yourself all the way back? So Joseph Smith was was chosen by God, you know, at the beginning of time, which I yeah. mean it it shows a little bit of hubris on Joseph in, in those early days for sure, but yeah it. You know, Joseph, son of Joseph, and, you know, it, it is a very interesting thing to me. And we talked about this in the Book of Abraham episode, but, you know, when he, and, and I know we're, we're straying a little bit from the, the scope here, but, you know, he's going to write the curse of, of black skin into the Bible as well. That was not in the Bible, but Joseph Smith goes in with the Book of Moses and writes in that, that black skin is a curse from God. And that is a 19th century racist idea uh, of like a white supremacy, um, however you want to phrase it, where white skin was favored by God that Joseph Smith is going to write back into the Bible. And, and those are the things that tell us um, that not only are they coming from the 19th century, but with Nemo's case, they're coming from Joseph because he's writing himself directly in there. Got it. All right. So what's, so I guess th- this is all leading to the question, 
what's wrong with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible? <laughs> so let's jump to yeah. the next slide. And, and this is a cool one because, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, all the scholarship on, on Mormonism has been done. And yet this one came out, I think, about three years ago. Or that it, or and, that it all comes from anti-Mormons, right? Always, yeah. And this, yeah. Is, and this is funny, too, because this study came out of BYU. Yeah. And it came from somebody who lost their faith over it because when you start to find these things and you realize, oh, my goodness, this is not what I thought, it makes you reevaluate what it is. But this was something that came out after I had started doing the deep dive and uh, was an absolutely fascinating find because I don't think I, I know people knew the influence of this, what we're going to talk about, but I don't think people knew the depths of it. And so it's pretty cool um, that they found this because they were working on a project that was a faith based project. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's dive into it. Yeah. And so uh, this BYU study that came out, um, it was written. Uh, I think it was about three years ago, but um, what they found out was they uncovered evidence that Smith and his associates used a readily available Bible commentary while compiling a new Bible translation or more properly, a revision of the King James Bible. Uh, the commentary Adam Clark's famous Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments was a mainstay for Methodist theolo theologians and biblical scholars alike and was one of the most widely available commentaries in the mid 1820s and 1830s in America. Direct borrowing from the source has not been pre has not previously been connected to Smith's translation efforts, and the fundamental question of what Smith meant by the term translation, with respect to his efforts to rework the biblical text, can now be reconsidered in light of this new evidence. Our research has revealed that the number of direct parallels between Smith's translation and Adam Clark's Bible commentary are simply too numerous and explicit to posit happenstance or coincidental overlap. The parallels between the two texts number into the hundreds a number that is well beyond the limits of this paper to discuss. A few of them, however, demonstrate Smith's open reliance upon Clark and establish that he was inclined to lean on Clark's commentary for matters of history, textual questions, clarification of wording, and theological nuance. In presenting the evidence, we have attempted to both establish that Smith drew upon Clark, likely at the urging of Rigdon, and we present here a broad categorization of the types of changes that Smith made when he used Clark as a source, and this is called a recently reco recovered source, uh, rethinking Joseph Smith's Bible translation. Um, and um, it, it just shows that it's not to say that Joseph Smith plagiarized um, the entire Adam Clark Bible Terry uh, commentary into the, in, into his revel, uh, revision, but that he heavily leaned on it to the point where it's not. You can't make the argument that you know it's happenstance or coincidence. Yeah, and um, just for the benefit of of our uh, of our viewers, I'm adding uh, an additional slide right now. And basically, what the slide is it's it's an actual picture of of the article, so that people uh, can see it. Um, and I'll add it in the show notes as well. Uh, it's the BYU Journal of Undergraduate Research. And the article is called A Recently Recovered Source, Rethinking Joseph Smith's Bible Translation by Haley Wilson and Thomas Wayment of Ancient Scripture. And Mike Mike just kind of, you know, communicated to us uh, kind of a, a red version of what happened. But if I can kind of just restate what I think I just heard, and Mike, you and Nemo can tell me if I understand the story right. Basically... There was a, a, a BYU undergraduate woman named Haley Wilson who is just starting to study the text of the Book of Mormon, trying to figure out some of the 19th century inspirations for the Book of Mormon. 
She says, what books might Joseph have had access to? She, she figures, huh, maybe, maybe he had access to this really popular book called the, the Adam Clark uh, Commentary on the Bible. She starts thumbing through it. She starts noticing a lot of language in, uh, in the Adam Clark Commentary that Joseph Smith would have had in his possession or in local libraries that was in print at the time that was very popular. She notices a ton of similarities between that and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And it's almost as if Joseph said, well, we need to revise the King James Version of the Bible. Who who has studied the Hebrew and really understands it? Oh, this Adam Clark guy did. Let me go see what he wrote about it. Oh, wow, that's really good stuff. So I'm going to claim to retranslate the original Greek, and then I'm going to create my own version of the Bible, and in a sense, plagiarize Adam Clark's work as Joseph Smith's own revelation when he creates um, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Now, Mike, I, that's just my attempt to restate what I think I just heard. Um, is, did I get it kind of right? I think so. I mean, I, she, I think she did. Did she do an interview with you as well? Yeah, I know she yeah. did one with Bill Real. And we're going to include that in the Mormon stories uh, in the show notes as well. Our our interview with Haley Wilson, I think Lamont is is her yeah, name. Yeah, I think yeah, I think yeah. her married name is Lamont. Yeah, and so Haley Wilson Lamont, and um, and if I remember correctly, she was doing was trying to create a paper and trying to find if there were influences, and I think it was one of those ones where all of a sudden she was doing textual analysis, and with the Adam Clark Bible commentary, just all of a sudden the alarm bells start ringing because you're finding a bunch, and then obviously once you once you get that that foothold. Then she started doing more and more, and then you find more and more. And so she certainly didn't go out there looking to disprove anything. She was just trying to find where the influences are. And then she started seeing that all of these like long phrases were being pulled directly from the commentary um, into the Joseph Smith translation, along with Joseph seeming on a lot of his changes to agree with Adam Clark's commentary. So maybe he's not using um, Adam Clark's exact language, but he's making changes that defer to the commentary that Adam Clark provides for, for the Bible. And so at some point you go, okay, that's, that's too much to be coincidence. And, and, and so, as I mentioned, it's not to say that Joseph Smith only used the Adam Clark Bible commentary. It's just that he used it enough to the point where we have a source that we could say without any question is heavily influencing something that is, as Bruce R. McConkie called a revelatory um, experience that I forgot, forgot the phrasing, but solidifies him as a prophet. And that's a problem. Yeah. Nemo. Well, anything you want to add? Mm. Um, just I seem to remember that um, they talked about Adam Clark's theology also being fairly distinct as well. And so some of the theological adjustments Joseph Smith made to the Bible are based yes. on Adam Clark's theology, which at which point, if you're meant to be getting this revelation from God, why are you using not only another man's maybe understanding of an ancient language, but another man's theology? Yeah, and that's something that Joseph Smith seems to do a lot, which is he's deferring these theological ideas to what's all around him and then repurposing them into Mormonism and as a small uh, bonus nugget for the Adam Clark stuff, we talked about this in our, I think it was, might've been the the book, Abraham, maybe that's the third episode, but um, Adam Clark is in his commentary is the one who talks about the legend of Abraham being sacrificed or attempted the attempted sacrifice of Abraham by fire, which ends up in, in the book of Abraham. And a lot of apologists will be like, Oh my goodness, how did Joseph Smith know? And it's like, it's in the Adam Clark Bible commentary, which we know without any question, Joseph was familiar with. Because a few years earlier, he's going to use that to revise the Bible. And so that is where you start to see, you know, as I've talked about this whole series about looking at it from an overhead view, looking at the patterns, 
you're starting to see the pattern. Joseph Smith is using it here in the in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He's also going to use some of these ideas in the book of Abraham. And, and because you have two different areas with being pulled from it, it's a really good indication that, yes, he absolutely was using them, which we could show through textual analysis as well. Okay. So now it's time to vote. I'll set this up. So if BYU... Oh, can, can you go back one? Can you go back one slide? I think the slide before the one you added, we hadn't done that one yet. Oh, so uh, go next one. Oh no, you go go forward a few. Oh, um, okay. Uh, one more. Okay. Now, here we uh, go. The next one. There you go. So I just wanted to point this one out. Um, the the next slide. Okay. And it's because a lot of apologists, when you talk about this, they talk about a revelation that Joseph Smith gets where it says, "And as all, it's from DNC eighty eight, and it says, and all." And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning, even by study and also by faith. And so this is an apologetic response you're going to get about the Adam Clark thing, because they'll say, God tells Joseph Smith to look at the best books to get ideas. And then, of course, the idea would be from an apologetic standpoint that Joseph Smith reads the Bible commentary, prays to God. God reveals, yes, Joseph, this is correct. You should go with this. Joseph puts it in, but I just want to point out that DNC 88 is not going to be claimed to be a revelation until December 1832 or January 1833. At this point, almost the entirety of the, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible is done. And so to, to cite this revelation as an answer for the Adam Clark one is kind of retrofitting history as we've shown in other episodes. But I just want to point that out because that is the most common response is to say, of course, Joseph Smith used it. Why wouldn't he have? God told him to seek out uh, the best books, but that's a revelation that's going to come after when he's already done it. And so it doesn't really, uh, in my opinion, work as a, um, like a plausible apologetic response. Well, it's post hoc reasoning by Joseph Smith. It's him yeah. adding in an excuse or yep. him saying that God has given an excuse after he's already done something. 100%. It's kind of like how the Book of Mormon constantly talks about how if there's heirs or the heirs of man, as, as a way, it's almost like you're insecure and you're trying to uh, kind of get ahead of the problem. Like, oh yeah, if there's heirs, it's just because it's the heirs of man, which is tricky because it's coming through a rock and a hat. So God, you would think would correct them. And so, yeah, it's 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 one of those fingerprints that Joseph leaves uh, almost because to Nemo's point, you're almost trying to give reasoning for problems that you know are out there. But yeah, either way, it's just, it's, it's after the fact. And so to use it there, in my opinion, uh, doesn't work because he had and already done it. Also, it's a scripture that says, um, if you're looking for learning, Joseph Smith shouldn't have been looking for learning. He yep. was looking for direct revelation from God. It was a revelatory process. Yep, so this isn't exactly. about Joseph Smith learning some interesting stuff, which, yeah, he can seek from wherever he likes. Yep. The source of his inspired uh, theology that he's then presenting to people as the word of God, that has to come from one source and one source only. Yep, exactly. Okay. All right, so to tee this up... Uh, if BYU's is publishing an academic article conceding that Joseph Smith uh, almost certainly either heavily borrowed from, if not plagiarized uh, from a specific book, the Adam Clark commentary, that we know he either had in his possession or could have easily accessed, uh, um, and that's that's you know our observations on the Joseph Smith translation. Mike, what what does that lead you? What grade does that leave you to give Joseph Smith on this one? I, I mean, I would give it a failing grade. I don't think it's as bad as the characters document because it at least has the King James Bible as a, as a foundation. But yeah, this obviously is not going to pass what Joseph Smith is claiming it to be. Okay, all right, uh, Nemo. 
as a translation, it fails as an attempt to make the Book of Mormon work with the Bible. It did, did all right. Okay. But as a translation, it fails. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adam Clark did all right, basically. Well, yeah, exactly. Adam yeah. Clark did fine. Yeah. And so that's that's my point. I'm, I'm going to say, obviously, this is a fail. He's not translating anything. Um, and I don't say that to be mean-spirited. It's just that I'm trying to be neutral and unbiased. But it's worse than a fail again. This is maybe not quite as bad as, as the last one. But, like, we all know what happens if you plagiarize in school. If you plagiarize, if you copy someone's work and claim it as your own in high school, at a university, you you not only fail, you potentially get kicked out because it's it's deception. It's 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 fraud in some sense. It's plagiarism. And plagiarism will get you fired at a university. And so that's why it's it's not just failed translation for me. It's bordering again in a second instance on on knowing deception or fraud. Because Joseph, if Joseph is getting these ideas from the Adam Clark commentary, he's got to know he's doing it, right? Yeah. I think. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, let's go on to the third, um, you know, oh zero for two so far. Uh, let's go ahead and go on to the third, which is the pure Adamic language. Tell us what that is, Mike. Yeah, so on March 20th, 1832, Joseph Smith is going to produce a sample of what they call the pure Edemic language, which was spoken by Adam. And this is after the church is established, and Joseph Smith was a great believer in being able to both translate English, ancient languages as well as speaking in tongues. And so basically in, in November of 1830, uh, Joseph Smith had already produced the verse in the Book of Moses that refers to a book created by Adam in the language of Adam, along with further clarification that Adam's children were taught to read and write, having a language which was pure and undefiled. And so he has set up this idea, and this is not, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure this is an idea that a lot of people had, that there's this Adamic language that was spoken in, in the you know earliest days. And so Joseph Smith is going to write that into the Bible. Um, and because of that, now has the ability as a prophet of God to channel that. And so that is going to lead him to... Um, do basically a Q&A session where he's answering what certain words would be translated to. And we actually have examples uh, of that. Is that right? Yeah. So this is, um, was written and it was copied down by brother Johnson. Uh, again, this is in 1832. And so they ask him, what is the name of God in pure language? And he says, amen. And then they say, what is the name of the pure word? Amen? Wait a minute, he wait says, a minute, wait a minute. Nemo uh, has his head down laughing. Nemo, why are you laughing? Well, because my fellow countryman, J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien, managed to create actual functional languages that do not necessarily resemble other existent languages. It can be done. Joseph Smith, with the help of deity, should have been able to do something. But no, this is what we have. The word amen, spelt differently. <laughs> yeah. That's what, what is that? Are you saying he's it's, just not original enough? Is that your complaint? He's just yeah. lacks originality? It, it, it just, it tracks, it tracks with the whole using English characters and deforming them. He's like, well, yep. maybe if I spell it differently, people will think it's a pure and undefiled language. Oh, amen. Yeah. yeah. Ah, I see. Ah, I see. Ah. Oh, dear. Man. I'm sorry. It, it, <laughs> Makes me cringe. Yeah, genuinely. this one. This is one. I obviously I never saw it as a member, and it's one of those ones where if the missionaries had, had sat me down and said, "Did you know Joseph Smith was able to speak the original language spoken by Adam and Eve?" and they showed me this, I would have just, I would have been like, "There is no way, no way." <laughs> and, and it's not to be mean. It's just as we go through it, you'll understand. This is like, 
this is when you're you're you've got someone on the spot and they have no thought in their head of how to get out of it and they just give you something that is so this would be like, and I don't mean to sound mean, but this is like when you give, when kids are speaking in a secret language, you're creating your own language. This is what you do. You just scramble what you know. And this is what Joseph Smith is doing. And it gets worse as All we right, go let's, through it. It's going to get worse. So. Let's continue. Yep. And so what is the name of God in pure language? Amen. <laughs> what is the meaning of the pure word? Amen. And he says, and it's funny too, because as Nemo points out in the actual writing, they write uh, amen with the W kind of bracket in there. So they almost hear him say amen as well which is, I find interesting because as you guys said, it's like, isn't it interesting that God's name is Amen? Um, anyways, ask him what the meaning of that is. He says, it is the being which made all things in all its parts, which is, you know, that's what God means. And then they say, what is the name of the son of God in Adamic language? And they say, the son, Amen. Like Joseph, Joseph says the son, Amen. Yeah, so it, it's just not even adding, like, not even trying to change the words. And so <laughs> then they say, what is the son Amen? And Joseph says, it is the greatest of all parts, all the parts of Amen, which is the Godhead, the firstborn. And then they say, what are angels called in pure language? He says, Amen, Anglesman. Oh and God. it's, I mean, it's just so bad. And wait, I, wait, wait, I, Nemo, I, Nemo, your head is down in your hands. So your face is red. What is wrong, and, Nemo? And it's just so cringeworthy. It's, it, uh, he's a grown man. Just why, why would he do this? Why, I, I don't understand. I, the thing I can't get is what his reasoning behind this as a legitimate response yeah. to someone's request for a, like a, a language, how he goes, yeah, this will do it. I, 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 don't, I, I do not understand genuinely. And everybody like, around him's going, wow, Joseph. Uh, yeah. Amen. Oh, wait, Ungles men for angel, just, angels? Oh, wow. I, just, I mean, yeah, I, we're being a little bit rude and mocking, but honestly, this strains seriousness yeah, right <laughs> it does it, it really does like you'd expect i mean I, again I, I i don't want to make fun of this and i started laughing because i blame nemo but yeah. the point is you're reading this and it's so like i you almost expect brother johnson to write in parentheses yes that's really what he said or are you kidding me because this is so bad it, like it reminds me it of pig like, latin it reminds me of pig latin I'm going to go with sports here, Nemo, and I, I apologize because I know I do that a lot. But it'd be like if someone said to me, um, can you give the Edemic language for the game of football? And I was like, they're like, what would the word football be in Edemic language? I'd like ball of the foot. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's, you're just scrambling what we know. And I mean, he should have at least tried to. to he does as he gets um, more and more into his prophetic calling. Um, there's that one talk he gives where he's like, if I was speaking in Egyptian, I'd say Zion, do I, you know, whatever. And if I was speaking in German, I'd say this and he could at least try, but he doesn't have the, I, I would argue he doesn't have probably the confidence and he doesn't have the knowledge to just throw out another language. And so he's kind of stuck trying to make up something. Why and didn't this he is just, just deflect? Why didn't he I don't just know. go, oh, it is too sacred to speak out yep. loud? I, like, I don't know. Why? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Let's go ahead and finish. Just, yeah. Let's go ahead and finish. Yeah, we'll finish it. Yeah. So it says, what are a angels called in pure language? Amen, angels, men. <laughs> what are the meanings of these words? Amen's ministering servants, sanctified who are sent forth from heaven to minister for or to sons, amen, the greatest part of amen. Sons, sons, amen, sons, amen, amen. I'm not sure why it's written like that, but uh, it's just, it's just, it's, I mean, this is one of those things that like, again, if a missionary sons, showed me amen, this. Sons, amen, son, amen, amen. Yeah. Like you could imagine would, Adam would, say, hey, Eve, sons, amen, son, amen, amen. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just, I, 
I just I, it, I I don't want to make fun of it, but this is one of those ones where you look at it and you're like this is this is so bad. Like he didn't even try to like hide the fact that he's just using the English language, and I it, it's it is it, it's an email point. What? It's so bad. I'm really glad that like a lot of members don't know about this. Yeah, Be- because otherwise I'd feel like I'm I'm just mocking people's sincerely held beliefs. But I, I, I know. honestly believe that probably 80, well, 90 percent of Mormons don't believe this because they don't know about for, it. For, for Mormons, for yeah. Mormons that are older than fifty three years old, though, they will know one Adamic word very well. Oh yes, that yeah, Joseph true. Smith yeah. also produced, and this is just. This will be something that actually does trigger emotion and belief and familiarity. If any of you Mormons went through the Mormon temple prior to 1990 and took out your endowment, one of the most sacred culminating experiences um, in the Mormon temple, when you learned like the second token of the Melchizedek priesthood or whatever it was, you were told to say, pay Lay ale, pay lay ale, pay lay ale, and you would all be standing there in like a baker hat, a white baker hat, and your white robes and your green apron, and you're going to be in a circle in the in the in the true order of prayer, like in a circle with all these other adult people, and you're all chanting pay lay ale. Those words pay lay ale, which the temple told you meant. Oh God, hear the words of my mouth. Is is Joseph Smith? Uh, it, it comes from Joseph Smith's claim to know the language of Adam. So that Pele Ale chant that you did came from from Joseph's claim to know uh, the Adamic language. From the mind that brought you Amen Inglesman <laughs> brings you Pele Ale. And of course, ale, uh, tell us Nemo, that's a word you might be familiar with, right? Yeah, it's a British type of beer. Um, <laughs> yeah. a, in fact, a pale ale is a type of alcoholic no, drink. pale yeah. ale is really a thing? Yeah, yeah pale oh my, ale. Oh my gosh, so he's getting it literally from like commonly available yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pale ale is just two <laughs> English words to describe, you, you get, yeah, just a type of ale, a oh type of beer. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Yeah. So Joseph... In the 1820s or 30s, that might have been a term, pale ale, because we were just recently come from England, right? Yeah, I I wouldn't want to say for certain. Yeah. Just in case it's a newer type of ale, perhaps, but very possibly. But but, but someone would say pale ale in the UK today. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You describe it like, I I like pale ales. Like, they're a type (laughs) of ale that people like or don't like. Unbelievable. All right, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got nothing. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I, I think the, the Pele Ale, I think probably would have been something he would have come up with in like the early 40s, right? Because when he was creating the the ceremony. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, you know, I've seen people and I, I was trying to look it up and it, it's, I don't want to get it. I, I don't feel comfortable getting into it because I don't know how solid it is, but people have tried to compare Pele Ale to like Hebrew and someone actually has come up with like how it's the, the closest connection is wonderful Lucifer. And obviously I don't think at all that that's what he was trying to do. So I, I don't really know about that, but I think, I don't know how to phrase this, but we talked in our Adam and Eve episode, Adam and Eve are not historical figures. And so to create this language, this idea that they were speaking our language effectively uh, 6,000 years ago in Missouri. uh, And then everybody in Missouri. This is the next slide, right? Should we just go to the next slide? Yeah. Yeah. I'll just go there. Yeah. 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 So, you know, as we talked about, you know, they're not historical figures. Um, Adam, Adam and Eve. 
We have it. We have a whole episode on this. Yes. Adam and Eve. Newsflash. Sorry, everyone. I don't mean to be rude. Adam and Eve never existed. The 6,000, 7,000 year earth model, the global flood model, the Tower of Babel. We've done episodes on all those things. If, if you're just joining us in the middle, and if this sounds shocking to you, you really do need to pause, go back and watch the, the Adam and Eve episode, the global flood episode, and the Tower of Babel episodes so that you understand what Mike is saying. So, so, so Mike, you're saying that, just, or Nemo? Yeah. I was gonna, just before we go into this, just before we go into this, what has been around for a long time is the word pale ale. It's been around since 1703. <laughs> okay. 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 That's good to know. Okay. It's also, I, I, okay, and I, I know we're going off on tangents here. There's also the story of Zelf the White Lamanite, where like Joseph Smith is walking around with some people somewhere in Missouri and they come across some bones and, and they're like, hey, Joseph, who's that? And he's like, <laughs> uh, that's Zelf the White Lamanite. You know, and he just comes up with this stuff, right? It's, it's a rod for his own back because once you've established a precedent like that, people at any time can just come up to you and go, hey, Joe, what's this? And you've got to come up with an answer because you've told people that you can just, God will just tell you. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's, it's, he's a rod for his own back because then all of a sudden he's in this situation where people see some bones and he he's the one who knows all about the ancient inhabitants. Yep. So he's there like, ah, right now I've got to come up with a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Mike. So, so now that now that now we know Adam and Eve, Tower of Babel, global flood, they're they're all problematic, right? Yeah, and we talk about this in, in those episodes. Obviously, we're not going to redo all that now, but they're they're ideological myths um, that are taken from earlier um, narratives and earlier stories. And, and so, the moment that you want to say that you have a language from mythical characters, you have a problem. And and so. Um, as Nemo already pointed out, this follows into the same pattern of our first topic, which was Reformed Egyptian, which is that Joseph Smith, once again, is just crudely modifying the language he's familiar with to produce ancient languages. And so, um, as we talk about, if the Tower of Babel is a literal story um, and the pure language was lost and the inhabitants on the earth were all confused, is it even possible that the language spoken in America during 1832 would still link up almost perfectly to a forever lost language 6,000 years ago? So even if we want to make some argument that, yeah, maybe Adam and Eve are true. Maybe the Tower of Babel happened. Maybe the global flood happened, which we, from a historical standpoint, they did not. Even then, you're not going to have a long lost language that just happens to fall on Joseph's lap in the 1830s in America match. It, it, it just, it, it strains any credulity mm -hmm. to think that Adam and Eve are going to speak in the English language 6,000 years ago in Missouri. It just doesn't work. But there, I, there I, is a... Yeah, there's a ton of hubris in it. That similar hubris I was talking about earlier, the idea that Joseph Smith thinks, well, you know, uh, sophisticated people use English because there's this white supremacy almost going on, this yeah. Western supremacy. So the best people in the world speak English. So therefore, this exceptionalism comes out. And he's like, well, why wouldn't that have been the original and best language? It's like yeah. English. So again, there's if, if you look at it through that lens, you can see why he might... I'm clutching at straws to help him out, but maybe... Yeah, I mean, there have been a few episodes we've done where there's like a, a a data point or an event we're talking about, and you just go like he he's in a position where he just he doesn't know what to do because he's a creative guy, but it's hard to come up with a language on the spot. And to Nemo's point, I can't believe he didn't just go, uh, you know, God says he'll reveal it in the temple or something to get out of it because this is one of those things where you look at it and you could show this. I mean, I've shown it to a few people that aren't Mormon and they laugh at it because it's so clearly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just bad. Yeah. 
I, I want to add something if I can, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to add it anyway. Mike, I think we ought to consider an episode for LDS Discussions where we find an expert linguist and bring them on. Because just like DNA, you can look at like mitochondrial DNA or or just any old DNA and, and, and be able to tie people through ancestry lines going all the way back thousands of years, right? Um, language has the same type of lineage mm -hmm. as does yes. DNA. And so even yep. though language isn't isn't biological, it is an organic material. If you read Jabberwocky, if you read Old English, yep. you'll see what mm -hmm. the parent of modern English is, and you'll be able to see how, along with mixing with other languages and even combining history with other languages and the way civilizations merge, then with um, more ancient languages, you can actually study how languages and characters evolve. Mm -hmm. And yep. so to summarize what I think you're saying, Mike, is that number one, Adamic language can't exist because Adam and Eve didn't exist. Uh, so it's dead on arrival. But also there's it is it is demonstrably false that all languages that exist now share Joseph's Adamic share any common language that would have existed six or seven thousand years ago because they all would have descended right and, and you would be able to read the languages and, and the previous languages and they would all point up in kind of like a pyramid to this starting language but that doesn't exist but it's even worse than that because we have writings from places like China characters and language and you know um um, is it Sumerian? What What is the predecessor to Egyptian writings? We've got ancient writings that predate the time that Adam and Eve would have even existed, and and they're yeah. divergent. There's Chinese Sumerian. on the one, Sumerian and Chinese. Cuneiforms, yeah. We've we've got cuneiform Sumerian Chinese languages that are written, as I understand it, that are documents that predate six thousand years ago. So for yeah. all these reasons, this is just it's literally silly gibberish. Infantile. If you'll yeah. pardon silly. the pun, John, you're speaking my language. Uh, I love <laughs> linguistics. Etymology, you know, the way words yeah. come to be is yeah. something I'm really interested in. I just pulled up the language tree actually from Old English, which Old English goes to Middle English, which then goes to Modern English, um, pretty much. Uh, but you go to Old English, which is like the earliest form of the English language. So that's the, the earliest that things could look kind of like this that Joseph Smith's describing. That was kind of kind of mid thousands so you know 600 400 500 those sorts of years but then it goes old english then to anglic anglo-frisian north sea germanic west germanic germanic and then indo-european so german is older than english german germanic languages have been going on a lot longer and that developed into like dutch and uh, norwegian and danish and english and those sorts of things um and then other language families that come off that are the romance languages like french and italian and spanish so you can like you said it is absolutely a family tree of languages and languages belong yeah. to certain families and what isn't in the indo-european language family is the language of the egyptians or arabic or you know th those languages um, aren't aren't part of that family tree. They're they're part of a different one. Yeah. But but they probably, I mean, maybe they converge at some point, but maybe they don't, right? Well, that's the thing. So people people developed speech, 
uh, a very long time ago. And the problem is speech in itself is hard to track because it, it you can only track it once we started writing it. So writing is actually the form of language that you can track yeah. more right. easily. And yeah, my, right. my understanding is that Mayan, for example, mm -hmm. uh, emerged completely independently of any of these other languages. Yeah, because people speak independently and then these different cultures have independently kind of work out how to then yeah. write it down, how to make record of it. So cuneiforms are one version, yeah. old runes are another version, you know, Chinese characters are another version, and those kind of are separate, different. But okay. there's, like, like Mike said at the beginning, there's only so many ways to make markings on a piece of material. So... Yeah. And, and and given the crudity with which it was done, things like depth weren't considered and that sort of thing. So it's just how many lines and what arrangement can you put the lines in? There, there's only so many ways to do that. Yeah. Now, now my okay. So I think I think I think Sorry. we've really kind of laid out the. <laughs> no, that was beautiful, Nemo. I really appreciate it. You said that more, way more thoughtfully and scientifically than I could have. Um, now I'm gonna before we give our final grade, Mike. I'm gonna. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, if that's okay, uh, just to close this point. Why are we including this in the category of translations? Because did Joseph Smith ever claim to have seen any Adamic language documents or speech or language that he would have translated? How how does this qualify or fit under the translation category if there's no source documents? Well, this one's similar to the characters just because the characters document, we obviously don't have the original meaning of it because obviously from, from my perspective, Joseph's fabricating them. In this case, we have the source material of what Joseph Smith claims to be translating through God. And so Joseph Smith is claiming that he's channeling through God what these words meant in the original Edemic language and what they would mean into, you know, 1830s English. So it is not quite as easy as say like our next one, which is the book Abraham Papyri, but it, we do have the source material of what Joseph originally wrote down in what he claimed he was translating from Adamic to English. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's, he's not, it's not as easy as a papyrus, but it, at least we have something to work from on that. Yeah. So in his mind, somehow in his revelatory, in his, in what he would have wanted people to to believe, he would have had some sort of conversations with God or gotten exposed to, if not written, then verbal um, right. exposure to the Adamic language. He would have remembered it, and then he would have been translating it on the fly to these people asking him questions. Is that why? Yeah, or for all we know, he might have been, you know, sitting with his uh, the rock in the hat. He might have been sitting in prayer. And as they ask him, he's sitting there and then he goes, it means this. You know what I mean? So it could have been, okay. I would guess that, I personally, that would be my guess would be that would have been similar to how he, because there, there are stories of him, um, the revelations being recorded and he's deep in prayer or he's got the, the rock in the hat. So um, I would imagine it's similar to that. And so he's claiming to be getting these translations from God as he's being asked what, what these words mean. And so um, to me, that's a translation, even if we don't have, even if it's not like from, you know, say Spanish to English, it is from uh, Adamic to English th through the means of divine method of translation, which he's claiming to have as prophet. All right. So we've, uh, we've, we've spent enough time on this one, but it's kind of a fun one. So Mike, what, what grade do you want to give Joseph on, translating the pure Adamic language. And this one obviously is, is a big, big fail on this one. Because, because why? 
Well, because Adam and Eve aren't historical figures, so to have a language from mythical characters is a problem as it is. And then obviously when you see the fact that it's it's crudely modified uh, English in yeah. uh, that was supposed to be spoken 6,000 years ago, yeah. it just tells you immediately that, that there's no way. All right. All right. Nemo? I, I don't really want to answer. It's, it's upsetting. Uh, yeah. No, it's a fail. It's a tiny yeah. bit insulting. Uh, it, it almost it, feels kind a of bit. a little bit insulting. I, I'm I'm all for like primacy of of England. Like I'm I'm all for putting England <laughs> on a pedestal. But this is ridiculous. Are you an Anglophile, Nemo? I, well, I mean, it's weird because yes, I'm an Anglophile, but also I contain within me a lot of the traditional British self-loathing. So I also kind of don't like England as well. Yeah, yeah, and I'll and I'll say it's a fail, and and if it loses points beyond fail, it's just for a pure lack of of originality or creativity, it's lack of effort. Yeah. It's, it is. It's, it's a little lazy, right? It's a little sloppy. It's lazy. It, it is. It's like I said, I, and again. I don't want to make fun of this stuff. This one in particular, though, it it, it reminds me of like when I was at, uh, in elementary school or maybe middle school, and you're with your friends and you're trying to come up with some secret language that you, that your parents don't know or some. And this would be the kind of stuff you would do. It's just it's so bad. And even beyond that, it's just as we talked about, if it, if it they're if they're not historical characters, then how are you channeling that language through God if they're not real characters? And so you have all of these different areas converging on this problem to tell you not only is it not possible to have this language but it's comically bad what he's coming up with so mm. as nemo said it's not even like he's putting in a good effort here to kind of hide what he's doing i i really as nemo said earlier i don't know why he did it uh but we have the source material so it, it's worth talking about because this is something he claims to be translating but at the same time it's it's bad and there's even just just really quickly there's even an argument that needs to be made there because believers are going to say well i believe adam and eve were real and then boom you've lost that point because people are going to say they were real historical right. figures you're not going to go around that but then you're like okay well then the tower of babel did happen and the languages were confounded at which point their language was lost so yep. why is it then appearing why did they speak english and why is english now here again that's just that's, it that's the other point to make if you're going to deal with those who do who do believe that adam and eve are real and won't yep. step on that yeah both forks on the road are going to lead you to the same yeah, point that this exactly. is not in any way credible okay mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess that makes Joseph 0 for 3. He's already 50% fail. And uh, we still got, what, three to go? Um, three to go, yeah. So the next one we're going to be covering is the is the uh, Book of Abraham. And I do want to say that we've done several episodes on this just immediately mm -hmm. prior. Yeah. And so I don't. we don't want to strain viewers and listeners' patience having them spent multiple hours already talking about it. But let's let's do the overview, you know, kind yeah, of quickly. Yeah, we'll go maybe. through this quick just yeah. because we we just did three episodes, really yeah. four with Kinhook Plates, which we'll do next. But, um, you know, as, as we've talked about in those episodes, of all the translations, the Book of Abraham is far and away the most problematic. Um, with the Book of Mormon, we only have the characters that he wrote down um, and then the text of the book itself. So we have no way to judge the Book of Mormon against any kind of source record um, and so that leaves us with, with only so much we could do with it. Um, but the introduction to the book of Abraham states the following, a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, purporting to be the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt called the book of Abraham written by his own hand upon papyrus. So it's making clear that what he's translating from is the literal writings of Abraham from his own hands, um, which makes this as clear a translation as you could possibly get. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's go to, uh, yeah. So basically, you know, Joseph Smith gets these Egyptian papyrus and he, and he claims to translate them into the book of Abraham, 
but now modern Egyptologists tell us that uh, the, the word Abraham doesn't even appear anywhere in the papyrus yeah. and that they're common funerary funeral documents that you would expect to be buried with Egyptian mummies, basically, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, so, and, and what I just said may sound flippant, but, uh, you know, as the next slide acknowledges, uh, the church's own gospel topics essay on the book of Abraham admits explicitly just in the past few years that the uh, papyri, the book of Abraham papyri don't even mention the word Abraham, let, let alone have anything to do with Abraham. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And so just, you know, the, the easiest way to put this is that we know the papyrus dates about 2000 years after when Abraham would have even lived. They have nothing to do with Abraham whatsoever. And they could not have possibly been written by Abraham because of the fact they're 2000 years later and have nothing to do with them. Um, the church concedes those points in their own gospel topics essay, which says these fragments date to between third century BCE and first century CE long after Abraham lived. And they also say none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mention Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the book of Abraham, Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the book of Abraham, though there is not unanimity even among non-Mormon scholars about the proper interpretation of the vignettes on these fragments. Um, we talked about this a long time in our episodes. Mm -hmm. um, when they say there's not unanimity, they are not saying that any non-Mormon scholar thinks that the book of Abraham is remotely credible. It's just that there is tiny little differences here and there and they're using that to try to uh, to you know throw a bigger web and um basically the the church itself is saying the papyrus fragments have nothing to do with abraham date long after him and so whatever joseph smith translates has nothing to do with the papyrus basically i mean that's basically the church telling us that joseph yeah, failed yeah. before we even grade joseph smith on the book of abraham the church has already tapped out and said all right joseph, joseph said he translated but now we agree he didn't translate, and so they try and move the move the game and say it was it was revelation, not translation, mm -hmm. right? Well, they'll say it's revelation or that it, the actual papyrus was lost, and this is just the other fragments that weren't part of what Joseph Smith translated, which we'll get into. But um, yeah, so I mean, it, up until then, it was like, yeah, we got it right, Joseph the prophet, and then all of a sudden, we found out through the Rosetta Stone that he got it wrong, and we found out through recovering the lost fragments that they have nothing to do with Abraham. And so the church then says, well, it's a good thing that we don't have the – that the real fragments are lost or that it was a revelation anyways, and he wasn't actually translating. God was just making him think it. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously we've gone through all of those apologetics in, in great detail in our earlier episodes. But, you know, taking this at face value, we can evaluate what's on the papyrus. And um, as we'll look at, we, we, we could see where Joseph was translating from. So just to quick, quickly review that, uh, the first slide is, yes, we have the source material for the book of Abraham. Yeah. And so this is, if you're watching, these are two um, manuscript sheets of the book of Abraham. And on the right side are the um, recovered papyrus fragment that just happens to be right next to facsimile one, which the book of Abraham is telling us to look in. It tells you that the, the source material for the book of Abraham is right next to facsimile one. When you look at the actual manuscripts, wouldn't you know it? Uh, the characters are right next to facsimile one. So everything lines up to tell us that, yes, we have the source material for the book of Abraham. It's just not, it's just not credible as a translation. So to use my, my summary language, we've got the papyrus and the characters, and then we have documents from Kirtland and or Nauvoo that Joseph Smith and his scribes were involved with that we can tie characters that are taken off of the papyrus to the words that are written 
as as a clear uh, attempt at translating each character that then go directly to the text of the book of Abraham. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, the, there, there's no way around this one. And we, we obviously we did four episodes or I guess three on the book of Abraham itself. And no matter which way you go here, um, there's just no way around the fact that we can show as, which we'll do in the next slide. Even if you want to claim a missing scroll, which goes against all of the evidence, the fact is we still have them publishing stuff contemporaneously with the symbols that Joseph Smith gets wrong. So no matter what you do, Joseph Smith could not translate um, what he claimed he could translate. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and jump on to facsimile, facsimiles one, two, and three. And I think we're going to talk about three specifically because you call that. Yeah. And Mike, so you like to I, call facsimile three the smoking gun, but let's. Yeah, I do okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, so for me, I always kind of, you know, it's like it's easy, it's easy as one, two, three. Well, in this case, even if you want to contend that Joseph Smith was not translating the symbols that both scribes wrote in the margins, we still have facsimile one, two, and three to assess his prophetic skills by. Um, because they were produced contemporaneously and published contemporaneously, we know what Joseph Smith was translating and what he claimed that these vignettes and facsimiles say. Um, and obviously, as we just said, the facsimile three is, is the most important because of the fact that it includes um, Egyptian characters that Joseph Smith translated, which absolutely kills any idea that a long or lost scroll um, would contain the correct translation. Because if you're if you're looking at this on um, if you're watching it, you could see the Egyptian characters that are above the, the these different figures' hands, and Joseph Smith's going to translate them. And so, if these characters are wrong, which, which they are, then why would anyone think that some sort of recovered lost scroll is going to be any different when we already know he cannot translate Egyptian characters? Okay. And so if we go to the next page um, or the next slide, sorry, um, it's going to be the same picture of uh, facsimile three. But I just wanted to point out two of the translations Joseph Smith makes versus what they actually say. And so um, figure two, it says, is King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head. And so what Joseph Smith is saying, if you look at the Egyptian characters, those characters would read King Pharaoh. Um, but what it actually says is Isis the Great, the God's mother. So it's actually a woman. And obviously is not King Pharaoh. So Joseph Smith not only got the Egyptian characters wrong, but he failed to see this figure as a woman. And as we mentioned in those episodes, Pharaoh is, is a title. It's not a name. Um, so what Joseph Smith is actually um, really doing is kind of calling this, you know, King King almost or President President because um, he doesn't understand that Pharaoh is actually a title and not like a specific name. And then in figure four, Joseph Smith writes, Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt is written above the hand. So again, very clear that he's translating characters. But what it actually says is, I don't know if I think it's Matt. It could be Matt. I'm not sure. Uh, Mistress of the gods. So again, it's a female, not at all what he claims to be, which tells us that Joseph Smith could not translate the Egyptian characters that he told us he could do. And we've already made a reference to this today, but I, I've done like 13 hours with Egyptologist, the late, great Dr. Robert Rittner. And in that, and then that episode, we have an actual Egyptologist, world famous, world renowned, who literally translates these exact characters in this facsimile, tells us what Joseph said they said, tells us what they actually say, and and verifies what the Mormon Church has now told us all, which is that Joseph did zero translating uh, with the book of with either the with the papyrus or with the facsimiles. Yeah. Fair? Did I get it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Nemo, anything you want to add? I, d I just want to say it's here in Mormon scriptures, right? 
this is my quad. Okay. This is my yeah. quad that I studied oh, from. Yeah, it's yeah, there. Yeah. Still in Mormon scripture. Yeah. It is still extant. It exists. The church has said, okay, Joseph Smith made two claims to translate what was on this papyrus and that it was written by Abraham's hand. The church has said it wasn't written by Abraham's hand because the scrolls don't date from the time where Abraham may or may not have lived. Two, then, does it say what Joseph Smith said it says? Well, our Egyptologists or the non-Mormon Egyptologists say that what is on that papyrus isn't what Joseph Smith said. That's it. That's all you need. Joseph Smith claimed to translate something written by a man who couldn't have written it because the scrolls aren't old enough and it didn't say what he said it would say. Yeah. Yep. Done. Yeah. Move on. And the church has already graded. The church has already graded this. The church one. graded him for us. Yeah. 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 We don't even have to do the grade. But Mike, uh, obviously, what's your grade? This uh, this is this is the to me the biggest smoking gun of all of this stuff. So the big it why yeah, big, bigger fail. than the why is this bigger than the other three that we just did? Because facsimile three is one of those ones where you have the source material. You know what Joseph Smith claims it is. It's canonized by the church. And so to me, all of that just, it, it's the most important because the church has canonized this as scripture. There, there's no way around it. Um, and so to me, that's why it, it's the most important one. Um, the, the characters document, of course, they could say, well, you don't have reformed Egyptian to compare to. Um, the Edemic language, you don't have the Edemic language to compare it to. Obviously, you know, we went over all that. This one, you have exactly what was written. You know, it's, you know, where the, you know, where this document's from, you know what it says. And you know what Joseph claimed it said, they don't match. He couldn't translate. Yeah. Simple. Pretty clear. Really yeah. simple. Nemo, anything to add? It's just so simple. And the church admits it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it's a fail for all of us. And mm, uh, the, the church even agrees. And it's particularly condemnatory, if that's a word, because when the church is, has canonized a, a fraud, then all mm. of a sudden that that in, that that indicts potentially the entire church because once your scripture, be, I mean, and I've heard Terrell Givens, BYU professor, chief apologist for the Mormon Church in 2023, when I've heard that Terrell Givens himself has recommended to the church leaders that they re remove the Book of Abraham from the canon. When your own top faithful scholars are saying take that book out, it's a problem. Not to mention the again. The, the curse of Cain racist doctrine, Joseph Smith yeah. like, can't create scripture without writing racism and dark skin is a curse into the scripture. Like for all those reasons and more, this is just a massive, a massive fail, which puts us at O for four. Um, you know, so this is looking really terrible. This is looking bleak. Yeah, I mean, I know everyone who's watching this is surprised given our first 30 episodes, but this is why this is why we did all those episodes, because now all of a sudden you can look at them all in one episode, yeah. put them all right there and look at it from an overview and go, yeah, this is this is what this is what the results are, you know, and, and we'll, we'll do our final two before I guess we make our final thoughts. But yeah, this is this is not really a surprise, but yeah, but it, it is the culmination of, of all of this background work we've been doing in the previous episodes. Yeah. All right. Well, never fear believing viewers and listeners because we still have two left. You still have two chances to mm -hmm. hope that Joseph Smith could translate. And the next, uh, the next topic is another one that we just spent. We just recently did a full episode on. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. I think our last episode. It's, so we, we'll the, go through it fairly the, quickly, but yeah, hook, it needs the Kinderhook plate. So Mike or Nemo, who wants to just give us the high-level summary of, of the story before we start reading which, reading the words? Or you can combine the two. But let's give people a kind of a storytelling quick summary of, of what happened. All right, let's let Nemo do it. Okay, Nemo. Okay. 
So uh, a group of people decided they wanted to try and, you know, trick Joseph Smith. So they dug a big hole in the ground. They buried some plates, then they filled it over. Then they got some people around so that they could see them digging through that same hole. They got hold of the plates. Oh, wow, look, we found these ancient plates buried. Let's take them to Joseph Smith. He'll know what to do. They took them over to him. He reads them. He goes, oh, yeah, this is what they say. And then doesn't really do much more with them. But those plates have survived. They haven't disappeared, unlike other plates that Joseph Smith had dealings with. So we can look at them. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So go ahead, Mike. The Kinderhook plates. Yeah. And so, as Nemo said, uh, Robert Wiley begins to dig in Kinderhook, Illinois, um, uncovers the plates. He makes sure that he's got a member of the church there. Um, so that they could bring him to Joseph. He kind of knew how to lure Joseph in, I guess, so to speak. And a member of the church there would leap for joy at the discovery. Um, the Times and Seasons, the, the church newspaper noted that the Kinderhook plates would undoubtedly prove the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Um, and on May 1st, uh, two weeks after the, you know, the claim discovery, uh, William Clayton makes a journal entry about the Kinderhook plates. And it says, um, I have seen six plate, six brass plates that were found in Adams, Pike County, by some persons who were digging in a mound. They found a skeleton about six feet from the surface of the earth, which was nine foot high. Because uh, remember back then they thought ancient people were giants. Um, and the, the plates were on the breast of the skeleton. Uh, this diagram shows the size of the plates being drawn on the edge of one of them. They are covered with ancient characters of language containing from 30 to 40 on each side of the plates. And this is the key part. Uh, President Joseph Smith has translated a portion and says they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. And he was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh of Egypt and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. And so William Clayton is Joseph Smith's scribe. Joseph doesn't write stuff down on his own. And so he's writing down what Joseph Smith is telling him these plates are. And as Nemo said, he doesn't do anything else with them. This is the partial translation. This is all we get. But that is a partial translation as written by William Clayton. And what we covered in the Kinderhook Plates episode is that up until, I believe, 1980, the yep. Mormon church is on record for decades and decades and decades as bolstering the Kinderhook Plate translations as evidence, as additional further evidence that Joseph Smith could translate. Am I right, Mike? Yeah. I mean, and not only that, but the the people who create the hoax do come out long after and say, yeah, we were trying to trick Joseph Smith. And the church is like, no, the hoaxers are the hoax and they're actually authentic because now they're trying to hurt him down the road. So I'm not saying that the prophets of the church were saying it, but scholars for the church, B.H. Roberts, who was a GA, um, were out there saying that these plates were authentic, that Joseph Smith could translate, and this is part of his prophetic work. So they defended him all the way up until 1980. And then what, happened, science, what happened in 1980? And in 1980, they finally did, uh, I think it's blast testing, they call it, on one the one the one plate that they found. And the uh, method of how the plates were created matched perfectly with how the person um, that claimed it was a hoax said it was, which was to use, I think, acid to etch the characters. And all of that lined up perfectly with what the test results were. All right. All right. Well, it's not looking good. So, uh, no. so this final slide and on the Kinderhook plates. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked about this um, in our episode with the Kinderhook plates. We also talked about this with the Edemic language a, a bit ago, but Joseph Smith did not know these were a fraud and gave a partial translation of them. And so I agree that we have no record that the partial was trans, uh, translation was claimed to have been through revelation or not claimed to be done through revelation. That's a lot of people say, well, it wasn't a translation because it was just a scholarly look. But Joseph Smith still gave a partial translation that we can now assess because it was done off of fraudulent plates. And so 
just as the Adamic language can't be authentic because Adam and Eve are not historical figures, you cannot have a correct translation off of a fraudulent item. And so in this case, whatever Joseph Smith says is incorrect because it's a fraudulent um, production that he is not aware is fraudulent. And so it just immediately tells you that this, this partial translation that Joseph Smith does is incorrect. Yeah. Nemo, anything you want to add before we vote? Yeah. Well, I mean, the other way that people try and give Joseph a break um, is that they try and say that, well, William Clayton wrote it. Joseph Smith didn't right. write this. But William Clayton is a trusted source for what Joseph Smith was saying, not not in least because he was trusted to write down sections of Doctrine and Covenants such as 124 and 125. He authored them. He wrote them down. So yep. you know, this is a man trusted to take down accurately what Joseph Smith says. Yeah, and and, Joe, and and to William Clayton, the idea that he was just kind of making this up or putting his own words in there, as we talked about in that episode, William Clayton was with Joseph that entire day and was there when Joseph Smith married Lucy Walker, which we talked about in the polygamy episode. So there, there is all the evidence in the world to say that William Clayton, one, was trusted by Joseph, two, there's no record he was making stuff up, and three, that he was with him that day. So it's hard to get around that. All right, so uh, so we don't belabor the points, uh, Mike. What do you what are you voting on, Kinderic plates? Yeah, this one obviously is a fail because any translation, even if it's just partial, off of a fraud is is going to be a fraud. Yep, Nemo, fail. Yeah. All right, that's not looking good. So now we're zero for five, and uh, it's looking bad. So, but but yeah. don't lose hope. There's one left. Um, the Lost Writings of John. So give us the story on this that one. That John. Yeah, not this John. Did, did, yeah. Not that John. John. Okay. Yeah. And this one is kind of a bonus one. And this one is one that um, I don't think I would have ever known about except for your interview with, with Dr. David Bakvoy. And he talked about this and it really just stuck with me in showing how Joseph Smith's revelations were limited to what he knew or what he didn't know. And in this case, um, he is going to claim to get a revelation from the author of the gospel of John, um, which is going to be able to be assessed because of the fact that we have the gospel of John to kind of compare the writing to, to see would this fit in with the writer of John or would it not? And so this is a really interesting one to me. All right. So tell us the story. I mean, a lot of us won't be familiar with the lost writings of John. So what's the story? Yeah. And so this is basically uh, in DNC 93, uh, Joseph Smith is going to reveal um, writings uh, slash records of the author of the gospel of John. Um, in this revelation, Joseph Smith refers to the writer as John in the first person, which is another pattern we see in Joseph's productions. Um, even though biblical scholarship has shown that the authors of the Gospels uh, are anonymous. So the person who is attributed as John is not actually John. Same with Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Um, and regardless, what's interesting here is that as Joseph Smith produces this, this revelation, he's using language that the author of the Gospel of John would have never used, which shows that it's not coming from John, but from someone claiming to speak for him. And um, David Bachvoy is going to explain this from his interview with you very well. And I think it's just a really enlightening um, kind of way to kind of cap off what we've been doing today. Okay. All right. So let's roll the tape of my conversation with Dr. David Bachvoy, and we'll include a link in the show notes um, to this episode. So let's, uh, let's roll the tape. I'll show this because this is so interesting, I think. So in section, for our audience will probably remember that in DNC section 93, the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith restores lost writings from John, the author of the book of John. Well, um, I'll notice, for example, 
verse 8. I'm in DNC 93, verse 8. Therefore, in the beginning, the word was, and he was the word, even the messenger of salvation, the light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth. You'd think you were reading from the Gospel of John there. It's all Johannine language. Who came into the world because the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light of men. Worlds were made by him. This is all Johannine. John's literature really wants to emphasize this idea of contrast between light and dark. And then we read first person, and I, John, bear record that I beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And then move down to verses 12 and 13 in Joseph Smith's Revelation. I, John, saw that he, Jesus, received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And thus, meaning therefore, meaning because he did not receive a fullness at first, but he received it a little bit by a little bit here and grew and grew, he was called the Son of God. And I underline called the Son of God because he received not of the fullness at first. That's very different than what Mormons are taught. John, That's alarming. Oh, John, there, the fact of the matter is the author of the Gospel of John would have been so offended by this language. Right. Because that's the gospel where Jesus wasn't called the Son of God. Jesus was the Son of God from the beginning. He didn't receive grace for grace. It was all from the beginning. Okay, so what, what was that again? What was that That scripture? was DNC section 93, oh. <laughs> verse 14, that's presented as if it's John's language. But John would never have said that. Mark could have said something like that, that he was called the Son of God at his baptism. But even Luke and Matthew would have struggled a little bit with that because he's born as the Son of God. This idea here reflects a theology, a Christology, that is completely antithetical to, the, to what the author of the Gospel of John would have written. There's no way he could have been responsible for any of this material, yet it's presented that way in Joseph Smith's Revelation. That presents a significant challenge for traditional believers once they're exposed to higher criticism in the New Testament and to see how that affects Mormon scripture. All right. So for so that's pretty powerful. But for those listeners that sometimes tune out when they start hearing academic buzzwords being used, who wants to summarize what, what David Bakavoy just said in kind of common common language? <laughs> Nemo, you want to give it a shot? Yeah, sure. Okay. I can give that a go. Yeah. So what David Bakavoy, the legend, was saying is that the author of John uh, used the word Johannine, meaning basically it is in the words of the author of John. A lot of what's in DNC at first sounds like the author of John, but then the words change, the sort of words that get used, which are still, Joseph Smith still claiming uh, from that author, they don't match all of a sudden. And not only that, but the theology, the ideas, the thoughts, the views of Jesus, the views of Jesus's calling, the time at which Jesus became the son of God, don't match up with what the author of the book of, or the gospel of John had said they don't match up so it, it doesn't match so he couldn't have written that because that wasn't the the feeling or the um the ideas that the author of the gospel of john was trying to get across got it yeah hope that uh, makes sense got it all right mike uh any, anything you anything you want to add to that no i mean like i said that was kind of more of like a bonus to what we've done because obviously when we're talking about translation with source material, in this case, we have the source material, which is the gospel of John. And so we can compare what Joseph Smith is putting in the words um, of the author of the gospel of John to what the gospel of John would say. And as Nemo said, they're incompatible. And so that tells you 
that whoever is writing this is not speaking for John and is not uh, portraying an accurate record of what John would have said. And so it just shows again, this pattern of Joseph Smith putting his own theology into the, the words of others in order to give it a greater importance to its followers. But as we can look at it with textual analysis, historical scholarship, all that stuff, it just doesn't work historically. It doesn't work in this case, theologically. And, and so it's a, a very big fingerprint that Joseph is leaving, um, which tells us that, that these are not authentic writings or words from John. Bummer, bummer, bummer for and the those way who are, go ahead, Nemo. So the way active believers may try to get around that, or certainly the way that Joseph Smith set them up to get around it, is that pesky old article of faith says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And that gives yeah. Joseph Smith almost carte blanche to try these sorts of things, where he'll yeah. then add a little bit, like JST, or he'll add a bit here, like in DNC 93. But the problem is, once you start to analyze what he added, you see that it's his product, not the product of the author Right. extra words he's meant to be bringing forward thanks to God who preserved them. Exactly. All right. So to not, you know, belabor it, uh, Mike, what are you given, what are you given Joseph on the last writings of John? Yeah, obviously this would, would be a fail just because of the fact it's incompatible with the gospel of John. Nemo? Fail. Yeah. And I'm just going to say, if Joseph has the power to just like in his mind translate documents that are like on the other side of the world. If he's got that power, why did the Nephites need to, to forge and shape and fashion gold plates and scribble on them and preserve and protect them for uh, a thousand years or however long it was? Like, why did he need to buy, you know, use precious tithing dollars to buy the book of Abraham? And then why would God... Why would God lead all these Mormons for over a century and a half to believe that all these things were translations just to all then discover in the 2000s that it's all a fraud? Why would all that happen if Joseph could have just translated stuff in his brain? He didn't even need the Urim and Thummim. He could just do it in his brain. So this lost writing, this this power that he has with the lost writings of John. And I'm saying that with air quotes, like if he's got that power, he, we, we got put through the ringer unnecessarily and in a way that really ended up working to defeat heavenly father's plan. As far as I'm making sense of it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things we've talked about in a lot of these episodes, which is to say from an apologetic standpoint, they'll say Joseph Smith believed he was channeling God. He believed he was re revealing God's words. And so in the book of Abraham, for example, he was thinking he was translating a papyrus, but God was just giving him the words, but God needed Joseph to think he was translating for it to work. And my response is always, if that's the case, one, why wouldn't God just tell Joseph that? Because otherwise, if, if God's plan, if the Mormon's version of God's plan is to bring everybody back to Christ, then why is the Mormon version of God setting up his prophet to look like a fraud over and over again? It, it doesn't make sense unless you want to say the Mormon version of God wants people to disbelieve, which makes no sense. So either the Mormon version of God is not very efficient at bringing people to Christ or Joseph Smith's making it up. There's really no middle ground there when you look at all of these translation products projects and none of them fit the historical record. 
All right. So let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and go to the final slide because this kind of summarizes it. So 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 Mike, you're you're a no on that. Nemo, yeah. you're Nemo. Did you vote? Oh yeah. It's okay. A fail. So I I'm kind of bummed. I'm kind of bummed for believers, and I don't mean that insincerely because nobody wants to have their beliefs ripped out from under them. And this is an important one. It looks, I mean, I'm saying fail, so it looks like we're Joseph zero for six. Yeah. Uh, zero for six, not even one, and that's that's pretty powerful. So, um, so Mike, you've got a concluding slide. Yeah, and so it's just to say, we, you know, we looked at the Book of Mormon characters that were copied directly from the gold plates. Uh, we looked at the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, the pure Demic language, the Book of Abraham papyri, the Kinderhook plates and the lost writings or, you know, lost records of John, I suppose the lost writings would be the parchment. But um, just looking at these six projects, Joseph Smith would not pass on any of these six. When you look at it at face value, using all of the scholarship we have, that's not correlated into the Mormon church. And as I've been trying to say throughout all of these episodes is that the problem with each of these, all of these translation projects, they tie well within each other. When we talk about the crudely modified English, when we talk about, uh, biblical scholarship errors. These are not one-off problems that have answers with apologetics, but they're patterns in how Joseph Smith is creating scripture in the name of God. And, you know, just to finish, as I've been saying with some of these other episodes is, would you trust any other religious leader, politician, organization, anyone who went over six on their exclusive truth claims um, that they are going to claim were received by divine means? Or would you say you were over six? Why in the world would anyone believe that you are speaking for God? And, um, I think that just goes to this idea that within Mormonism, we often engage in the special pleading, which is to say, we can evaluate these other churches, whether it's Warren Jeffs or David Koresh or even the Catholic Church. They used to really hate the Catholic Church and see all the flaws in them. But then when it comes to all of the very clear um, truth claims that are, are false within the Mormon Church, we go, well, that's okay because we know Joseph's a prophet. And so it really boils down to if this was any other church, how would you react? And what does that tell you about the truth claims of Mormonism and Joseph Smith? Yep. Nemo, anything you want to add? No, it's, it's, what else is there to say? Okay. Well, I'll just, I, I guess I, I always have something else to say. Uh, I'll say, <laughs> I'll say one last thing. And this is the way I summarize it. Like someday we need to write a book on the, on the, the, the story of Mormon truth claims, because here's the story as I understand it, you know, Joseph and his family got involved in treasure digging based on belief in folk magic and mostly the gullibility of surrounding neighbors. And Joseph Smith made money and got fame and recognition for the ability to convince people that he had special powers to uh, find hidden treasure in the earth using a stone and a hat. But by 1826, 1827, he's starting to run afoul of the law and he needs a new gig um, and so what he does is he pivots. He's got now the ability to convince people that he has special powers, but he needs to pivot so that he can continue to have a livelihood in this realm of being perceived as someone with special powers. So the production of the Book of Mormon, by claiming that he found hidden treasure that had ancient writings on it and that he was able to translate it, it extends on his special power because it starts with his special, alleged special power to find hidden things in the ground. But then he one-ups it by saying, not only do I have special powers to find hidden things in the ground, 
I have special powers to translate ancient languages. And so you should believe in me and see me as a man of God, as a man of special powers. So when he produces the Book of Mormon, it's the beginnings of a new, um, you can call it an initiative or a fraud or a con or whatever you want to call it. It's a new gig where Joseph is extending people's perception that he has special powers. And that's crucial because not only is that what happened, but he writes it into the Doctrine and Covenants and attributes his alleged power to translate he alleges that it's 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 written down and canonized by God and Jesus themselves. And so this is the foundation, in my view, upon which Joseph has and acquires his early power. And so if it if it was the foundation of his power and influence, if it's canonized, and then if it's shown to be outrageously, thoroughly, demonstrably false, zero for six, zero percent, probably less than zero percent because we've been able to demonstrate intentional, likely intentional knowing fraud, this is, this is a powerful condemnation of Joseph Smith's not having the power that he claimed, but also as a, as a, as a obvious fraud or charlatan. And I hate to use those words, but those words apply if those words have any meaning at all. Was I too harsh? Oh, man. Was I too, ah, man. Ah, man, Engelsman. Right? Oh, <laughs> Touche, Nemo. Yeah. That was brilliant. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, and, and to your point, it's like, those are harsh words uh, to label him as a charlatan. But the problem is to me, and we we've done so many episodes now that these really do kind of blend together, but these are the translation projects that are going to get Joseph Smith followers. And those followers are going to view these translations as proof of him being prophet to the point where they will give him their daughters in marriage. Teenage girls are going to marry and have sex with him because they believe he's a prophet because of these translations. And then when you could show that when we have the source material that it's, it's simply not true you, you kind of think about like all of these people who gave their lives, not just to the church today, not just to the church of the last 200 years, but people that gave their, their, their love life, their, their chance at romance to him. Um, you know, teenage girls that were like 17, 18 years, years old, they're having sex with him because they believe he's a prophet and he's using that to leverage against him. And so I realized from a, a apologetic standpoint or believing standpoint, you might go, that's really harsh to combine those two, but you have to remember, this is the vehicle that's going to get him followers. That's going to get those followers to give them their property themselves. And, and, and so, yeah, it, this just shows how he uses the voice of God to get what he needs. And yet we have the source material saying what he was doing is simply not true. And mm -hmm. so you can't say the church itself isn't true. I know that's a matter of faith. You can show that the demonstrable truth claims are not what they claim to be. And once you have that, then you have to say, well, what are the implications of that? And what did Joseph Smith do to other people under the guise that these are true, knowing that they couldn't have been true? I don't know if I'm being confusing here, but I think there are implications beyond just these translations that come from him using the voice of God to do this. Um, and, and, you know, it goes all the way to today where you have leaders telling the youth, don't you dare doubt because you're going to throw it all away when you can look at it with your own eyes and go, this isn't what it claims to be. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I'm rambling uh, a bit, but just to say that th th these are important not just for the translation, but for what these translations lead other people to do. Yeah.
I think you're right, John. This is the behavior of a charlatan. You know, this is this is the this is the modus operandi of someone who makes things up for people to believe. And when we can actually look at the thing that they claim was the thing they were translating, it just turns out not to be. Um, but people back then couldn't check that, so they they took his word for it, and he relied on that trust and and the the fact that they took him at his word and the fact that they would follow him and believe him to then get power and money and access to women yeah yep and i'll just say to summarize my view if 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 elron hubbard did this if mm-hmm. keith ranieri of nexium did this elron hubbard of scientology if the jehovah's witnesses did this if john delin did this there's no if 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 john did the things, if I did the things that Joseph Smith did in 2023 and claimed to be a man of God and have the power of God, and then all the evidence shows I was making it up, plus I asked for your wives in marriage and I asked for your teenage daughters in marriage, sometimes your 14-year-old daughters in marriage, I wouldn't just be not believed, I would be imprisoned and possibly executed. And so why are we willing to extend um, good faith to Joseph. Well, Warren Jeffs is in prison now. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, we start out saying we want to be neutral, and I know we come down harsh at the end, but in this case, I really do think the evidence warrants that. So thank you, Mike and Nemo, for today. Mike, do you quickly want to tell us what's in store next? Yeah, we've got uh, probably about a dozen left, and I think our next episode is going to be similar to this episode. We're going to look at all of the unique um, kind of doctrines and unique ideas of Mormonism, and we're going to look at where they come from to see. Uh, you know, it, it's something I thought of a long time ago, which is I'm old. I'm old enough now to, to where I used cassette tapes when I was a teenager, and we would record off the radio. You'd make your own mixtape, right? Or you'd get CDs and and make a mixtape. In, in a lot of ways, Joseph Smith is going to pull from all of these surrounding ideas, whether it's the, the endowment ceremony, which we talked about in a previous episode, uh, the three degrees of heaven, um, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham. And so we're going to look at those kind of in the same way as today's episode to put them all in one episode to say, here are all the unique ideas of Mormonism. Do any of them seem to come directly from Joseph Smith or do they seem to come from ideas around his worldview in the 19th century? And I think it'll be a fun exercise. And then after that, we've got, I believe, four episodes um, on Revelation, and that's going to kind of transi- transition us from, you know, the founding of the church to the kind of the modern day to get us to that last batch of episodes. So we've got a lot left, and I think it'll be fun. And I think for those of you who've been following along the whole time, um, this will be a good way to kind of um, finish up with the scriptures, finish up with some of this unique Mormonism um, ideas from Joseph Smith's time, and then start to work our way towards uh, the modern day church, Revelation, personal Revelation, um, doubts, apologetics, all that stuff. So we, we've got a lot left. I think it'll be fun. Um, and I think the next one will be a little like this, except it'll probably have some more stuff we haven't talked about previously. So I think it'll be a good exercise to kind of evaluating um, where all of these unique doctrines are coming from. Brilliant. All right, Mike, as always, you're a genius. Check out LDSdiscussions.com. Uh, check out uh, the LDS Discussions podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, or you can check it out uh, on the Mormon Stories podcast YouTube page under the playlist LDS Discussions. Um, Nemo, check out Nemo the Mormon on YouTube. Subscribe to his channel. Donate, donate to Nemo the Mormon as well. Nemo, any final words? No, just it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, everyone. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Nemo. All right. 
Thanks. Thanks, Nemo. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, viewers and listeners. We love you guys. Please donate to Mormon Stories. If you value this content, you can go to mormonstories.org, click on the donate button, become a monthly donor, and we'll keep this series going. But uh, without any further ado, we love you guys. Be kind to each other. Be good to each other. Please share this with everyone. Please hit the uh, subscribe button on YouTube and on Facebook and everywhere else. And uh, we'll see you all again soon on another episode of LDS Discussions and on Mormon Stories Podcast. Take care, everybody.